Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. And so I felt like, you know, 
it would be good if we just remind ourselves of some basic truths regarding the papacy. And so I started throwing some things out about how uh, the church at Rome did not have a single bishop until about 140 A.D. There was no monarchical episcopate. This is acknowledged by scholars on both sides of the Tiber River. Um, hence the idea that, you know, Peter was there and then he, he had one particular successor. Those succession lists come later. There's variations between them, etc., 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 etc. And then I started talking about the, the theological aspect. And I was just amazed at the responses I started seeing on Twitter. I wasn't really monitoring Facebook. Most of the stuff I just write in Twitter and then also post to Facebook, so I apologize for that. But uh, there's only so many things you can follow at once. And, and I was just amazed at what I was seeing. And so I wanted to take the time, just needed to take the time. Since I'm going to be out of town tomorrow, we couldn't do it in the regular program then. I don't know if we're even going to be able to fit one in on Friday. Um, so I just wanted to take the time to remind us that the issues of the Reformation, even if it is but a small percentage of people today that care any longer, still matter a lot. Now, obviously, it would be a great indicator of the health of the Church if many people recognize that these are definitional and vital issues, but honestly, um, what can I say? I mean, we noted yesterday on the program that Rick Warren was talking about fasting and praying for the Cardinals in their, in their, in their deliberation. And I was just left going, what? What? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul tweeting that we should fast and pray for the Judaizers as they choose a new leader in Galatia? Really? But you see, today, issues of truth, no longer matter to many people who even call themselves Christians. As long as you just say Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead, that's it. You don't have to answer, you don't have to explain what that means. People today have no understanding why there was an Arian controversy. Why there was a controversy around Sabellianism and dynamic monarchianism in the in the second century and uh third century and, and they don't they don't the idea that people consider these things so important that they would go to the mat about them, it's just, for most people today, nah. And in fact, I was accused of being divisive. Divisive. And one guy this morning was accusing me of slandering. All because I point out some basic things. And what are these basic things? Basic thing number one, Rome does not have the gospel. Oh, thank you. Biglow just pointed out that uh, Rick Warren also tweeted today, Welcome Pope Francis, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Habimas papam, we have, you have our prayers. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, thank you, Rick Warren. Why does that bother me so? Because, see, in our day and age, where, see, you're not supposed to offend anyone. Everyone's just supposed to get along. It's just that everything's supposed to be wonderful. Why does that offend me so much? Why am I willing to marginalize myself? And I know that I am. 
I would get a lot more invitations if I didn't talk about these things. We didn't do a special program about this. I know that. Why am I doing so? Well, point number one, Rome does not have the gospel. Now, if you're one of those folks that thinks the gospel can be pared down to two sentences, and that we really didn't need all that stuff in Galatians, we didn't need all that stuff in Romans, then you don't have any reason to believe what I have to say. If, if you're canonically challenged, if you don't have, if the New Testament as a whole does not define for you what the gospel is, then you're not, you know, there's no reason for you to be listening to me, because I happen to think that the gospel is defined by divine scripture. All of scripture. The whole thing. And as a result, there are certain things taught in the New Testament that absolutely, positively leave me without any possibility of responding like Rick Warren has responded to the issue of the papacy. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says some very strong things. He sort of skips past his normal greetings. And he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be anathema, accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Do you believe that there is such thing as a false gospel? What would make a false gospel for you? What's a false gospel? Can we understand it? And if there is a false gospel, does that not, does that not mean that we can know what a true gospel is? There are many people today, there are many people in the church today that do not believe that God has maintained a sufficient knowledge of his gospel in the church that we can even address these issues, that we can even talk about these things. But the Apostle Paul did not say, I curse those who preach a false gospel. He specifically stated that it's God's curse that comes upon the one who preaches a false gospel. So, the first thing, does Rome have the gospel? Does the man who stood on that balcony today lead people to a knowledge of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Now, when you continue on in the book of Galatians, you will notice that, that Paul says some very strong things, and then he's, he talks about going up to Jerusalem. And then, beginning at verse 3 of chapter 2, notice what he says. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had snuck in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, 
in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now, what does that mean? Could that have only happened once? Do we no longer know what the truth of the gospel is? Who are false brethren? Can we know today? So many of the people that were responding to me, I don't think they could ever tell you who a false brother is. Why, I'd never call anyone a false brother. Why not? If you would not call someone a false brother, where are your priorities? It's certainly not with the gospel. It's certainly not with Christ. It's certainly not with God, because seemingly you're more concerned about their feelings than God's. And you'll never understand why the Reformers risked their lives, why Geneva produced a constant stream of missionaries who went into Italy who died for their faith, if you bought into the modern idea that someone else's feelings are more important than what God has revealed and what God has done in Jesus Christ, you'll never understand it. And you'll certainly never stand in the line of those people. Never. Paul recognized there were false brethren, and they had snuck into the fellowship of the saints. They were there to spy out the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, and false teachers always have one goal, to bring us into bondage. Now, they can do it in a lot of different ways. Sometimes they do it real blatantly. They bring you into bondage by getting you to give them their money. But other people do it, and oh, they look so humble. And they're not trying to get money, but they want your allegiance. The Apostle Paul said, after I leave, men will arise from your own number, and they will steal people right out of the flock. They want followers for themselves. They want religious authority over others. So who are the false brethren? Can we identify them? Now, Paul went on to say some incredibly strong things in the book of Galatians. Things that, to be honest with you, a lot of people today would never repeat, and they would never condone. That's why I said as long as the book of Galatians is is in the canon of Scripture, I must seek to evangelize Roman Catholics. Once you can get rid of Galatians, then we can start editing the gospel. But notice what is said in Galatians chapter 5. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under the obligation to keep the whole law. And what does he say to those who have been seeking to be justified by law? They're only doing one thing. They're, They're only saying you have to be circumcised. But that means they're seeking to be justified by law. What does Paul say to them? He says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. you hear those words? Severed from Christ. Fallen from grace. You cannot walk down the road of legalistic fulfillment of law and walk down the road of grace because they go the opposite direction can't do it. 
And so here's the question. If Paul could anathematize the Judaizers, we have no evidence the Judaizers denied the deity of Christ, denied the resurrection, denied the cross. But what they did do was they added one thing. Before the cross can be made effectual for you, you need to do this. You need to be a part of this. Rome has gone so far beyond anything, anything that the Judaizers could ever, ever have dreamed of. So far beyond it, the Judaizers were amateurs in comparison to the Bishop of Rome. What do I mean? Well, I started trying to explain to people, and as one fellow pointed out, (laughs) you know the vast majority of evangelicals don't even know what an indulgence is, and he was right. He was right. And, you know, I've spent so many years on this. In the 1990s, this was our our primary focus, quite honestly. I mean, uh, I don't know how many debates I've had, at least 40, maybe closer to 50. I I, I don't know. A huge number of, of my debates have been with Roman Catholics, and yet we have so many new listeners that they seemingly skipped those, or maybe thought that wasn't something they'd find interesting, or maybe it's just an eccentricity of mine, not realizing that I have to respond to what Romanism says, to be consistent. Have to be. What is the Roman Gospel? If you've looked at my book, Roman Catholic Controversy, that's what I focus on. And to boil it down to the simplest words, Rome's Gospel cannot give you peace because it has no finished work of Christ. Now, I don't have the time today to expand upon all this. As I said, you can, you can get hold of debates we've done with Mitchell Pacwa and a bunch of people on these very subjects and expanded upon these very topics. The Mass and Justification, the Marian Dogmas and Papacy and Sola Scriptura and Priesthood and all this stuff. But the fundamental issue is this. The Gospel of Rome which Rome defines in her own conciliar documents, in her own infallible statements, which she defines as dogma, goes far beyond anything that the Judaizers could ever dream as far as additions to the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's focus upon the main and plain things. And I, I, I don't know if we have any phone calls, but those of you who were accusing me of slander and division, we have a toll-free phone number, 877-753-3341. And maybe you didn't know that I have spent years interacting with most of the leading representatives of Roman Catholic apologetics in the United States. Maybe you've not read the books that I've written, written on the subject or listened to the hours and hours and hours of debates that we've done on the subject. The number is 877-753-3341 if you have the courage of your convictions. 
And if you'd like to substantiate the allegations, then give us a call. I'd like to hear from you. But listen to what I have to say in the process. There is no finished work of Christ in the Roman Catholic faith. If you understand the doctrine of transubstantiation, if you understand the doctrine of the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice, then you know that it is true that you can approach the alleged sacrifice of Christ represented in the Mass thousands and thousands of times in your life and yet die impure. Die impure. Because you see, allegedly by the power of sacramental consecration, the priest is made an altar Christus, another Christ. The man who stood upon that balcony believes he is an altar Christus. Even George Weigel, in his book, Evangelical Catholics, promoted the whole idea. Once again, he used the very term, alter Christus, another Christ. They embrace it. Mitch Pacwa embraced it in our debate on the, paper, on the uh, priesthood. This is not something that, well, that's what they used to believe. No, this is the current, accepted, embraced, rejoice in teaching that every priest, every bishop is an altar Christus, another Christ. And that by that sacramental authority, that man, when he says the words of consecration, the miracle of transubstantiation takes place, and he renders Jesus, body, soul, blood, and divinity, present upon the Roman altar as an unbloody sacrifice propitiatory sacrifice for sins, but it is not a propitiatory sacrifice that actually perfects. It has a limited response and effect. And that's why you have to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. Because of the miracle it takes place in transubstantiation. That is why the Roman Catholic bows and genuflects toward the tabernacle, the monstrance, the pyx, the ciborium, whatever, where the consecrated hosts are kept, because Jesus, as God, is physically present in those hosts. And my friend, if you can approach the sacrifice of Christ ten thousand times in your life and still die impure, I say to you, you have never approached it even once. Because the sacrifice, the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God upon the cross of Calvary perfected for all time those for whom it was made. It is not the same sacrifice. It is not a finished work. That is why you have the whole sacramental system where God's grace is channeled to you. It's controlled just as you are controlled by the church. That is the essence of human religion. The essence of human religion. And that's why you have men who are called priests. There are no sacramental priests in the New Testament other than Jesus. Listen to my debate with Mitch Packle on the subject. 
Well, you see, presbyters became priests. No, presbyters and elders and bishops, they're all the same office in the New Testament. There was no apostolic establishment of the concept of a priest in the New Testament. That's a fact of history. It's a fact of history. Fact of the Bible. Hence, there was no sacramental forgiveness by priests. There were no penances. There was no purgatory. Oh, yes, they still believe in purgatory. They'll even debate it once in a while. Just folks, the Catholic answers want to forget when they debate that particular subject. We've debated a number of times. And let me guarantee you, we've never lost a debate on purgatory. You better not lose a debate on purgatory. I mean, whether it's biblical or historical, the facts are all on our side on that subject. Ask Tim Staples. Ask him why he won't tell anybody about the last time we engaged that subject. Just sort of conveniently forgot it. Or watch the debate with Father Peter Stravinsky. Doesn't matter which one it is. The fact of the matter is, Rome teaches purgatory. Rome teaches that you can die in the state of grace and then have to undergo satis passio, the suffering of atonement and purgatory, before entering into the presence of God. And even today, if you listened carefully, if you listened carefully, you heard that in the announcement of the new pope, a plenary indulgence was offered to those who were watching. What's an indulgence? It's a transfer from the thesaurus meritorum, the treasury of merit, which is made up of the excess merit of Jesus, because he only had to shed one drop of blood to redeem the world, but he shed his blood copiously, so there's an extra amount of merit that comes from that, and then the extra amount of merit that comes from Mary, because she was perfectly sinless, and therefore she had all this extra merit, and then the extra merit of the saints, it's all put into the Tsar's meritorum, and then the church uses that to dole it out to you. And there are more sections on indulgences in the Universal Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church than there are in justification. Look it up. Look it up. Read Indulgentiarum Doctrina, the post-Vatican II conciliar document, apostolic document, apostolic constitution, I'm sorry. Read it for yourself. No finished work. Alter Christus. This would be alter Christoi, plural. Purgatory. Indulgences. Do you think that goes just a little bit beyond what the Judaizers dreamed up? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And we haven't even talked about the fact that Rome has defined as a dogma. The Marian dogma. So you have to believe that You have to believe that. You cannot reject that and be a member of the Catholic Church, according to Rome's definition. And never, ever forget the amazing statement made in my first debate with Jerry Mattatix in New York. It wasn't our first debate. We debated the Marian dogmas in speaking of the bodily assumption of Mary. What did he say? We have just 
as much a basis and ground for believing the bodily assumption of Mary as we do the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he said. You can listen to it for yourself. An absolute myth of history placed on the very same level as the very resurrection of the Son of God. That's Romanism. That's why I call it Romanism. It's not Catholicism. It's not according to the whole. It's not the universal faith of, of, of everyone who's believed. There was not a single person of the Council of Nicaea, not one that believed everything you have to believe to be a Roman Catholic today. Not one. None of them believed that. None of them believed in purgatory and indulgences and the Marian dogmas and all the rest of this stuff that has been defined as dogma. Don't talk to me about the 2,000-year-old church. Not when you have changed what must be believed, which is the essence of the faith itself. And so what about the Pope? What about that man? He seems so nice. He seems, everyone is talking about how humble he is. Everyone's talking about how humble he is. Is that why he allowed thousands of people to stand out in the cold and the rain and shout his new name? Is that why people will bow down and kiss his ring? Is that why he was wearing these, these vestments and all the... Is that, is that what humility is? Really? That strikes me as odd. But you see, what I was pointing out on Twitter that just got people just so upset are the names and titles of the papacy. He's called Pontifex Maximus. Ironically, that was initially an insult Tertullian used against the Bishop of Rome to insult him because it was the primary name of the high priest of the Roman religions. But it became a title used of the Bishop of Rome himself. What are the other terms? Well, he's called the Holy Father. I was listening to Catholic Radio this afternoon on my way into the office. Our Holy Papa! We have our Holy Father again! Hmm. Really? There is, of course, only one use of that term in the New Testament, and it is in Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he refers to the Father as the Holy Father. We have a Holy Father, and one is enough, and there is only one, and I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine a Christian man allowing another Christian to bow the knee, kiss his ring, and call him Holy Father. I can't imagine. Oh, well, it's just tradition. I can't imagine it. Another term. Vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ. Who is the vicar of Christ? Well, vicarious. Vicarious punishment, right? The one who takes the place of another. A vicar. 
So the Alter Christus, who becomes the Alter Christus, the primary person, the vicar of Christ on earth. Who is the vicar of Christ on earth? Well, biblically. There's only one answer to that question. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Think of it. This man embodies in himself the unique title of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Wow! I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God someday and explain why I allowed anyone to apply triune names to me. Don't want to do it. No, thank you. Mm-mm. The papacy has a long and checkered history. And unfortunately, many today don't really care that for many centuries the Bishop of Rome was one of the primary persecutors of Christians. Many a saint, many a saint, was ushered into the presence of the Lord through the machinations of the Roman papacy. In fact, one of the ironies is that the very same source that people on the Roman Catholic side like to quote about the 33,000 denominations, the very same source on the next page, as I recall, identifies the Roman Catholic Church as one of the primary makers of Christian martyrs. (laughs) They don't quote that part for some odd, strange reason. But the reality is that many of our forefathers entered into glory on the commands of many of the great popes of the past. Now, after 1870, we actually have been forced to believe, if you want to be a faith Roman Catholic, that the Bishop of Rome is infallible. Now, of course, I have found this to be one of the most uh, vapid of Roman dogmas because you can never really define what it means. Find an error of an ancient pope, and, well, he wasn't speaking infallibly there. It's a great dogma, totally undisprovable, because it doesn't matter what you show. If you find an error, well, he just wasn't speaking infallibly there. And you can never, ever, 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 ever know when he's speaking infallibly. So it's absolutely irrelevant outside of providing this this shallow, meaningless feeling of warmth that, well, I'm following the Pope. And he's infallible. He might be wrong about this, but if so, then he's not speaking infallibly, but I'll never know in my life. It's just great. It's meaningless, but it's, it's, you know, it's a... It's a bait-and-switch thing. Here's a man, and people look at this guy, and they want to go, they want to go, he looks like a nice fellow. I mean, did you know he only has one lung? Yes, he only has one lung. That lung was removed uh, in his youth with some infection or something. Wow, it's amazing. 
and I hear that, that he, um, he takes the bus tour and that he lives in a little apartment and he cooks his own food. I think all of that is wonderful. But you know what? Arius is probably a nice guy too. And I know some wonderful Mormons and some sincere Jehovah's Witnesses and some great Muslims. And I've known a few atheists that were downright kind. It doesn't have anything to do with the truthfulness of what he says. And so what do we have today? The phone lines are open. 877-753-3341. We've got one line taken, but we've got others if you want to get in. What do we have today? We have very clearly a massive demonstration in the outpouring of, first of all, utter ignorance of church history, utter ignorance of the gospel, utter ignorance of what defines the Christian faith, a massive outpouring of the proof that so many today who are not Roman Catholics don't really have any reason not to be. They're just not Roman Catholics by taste, by preference. And I don't like what they wear. And I don't like the service. I prefer drums. Well, you know, there are lots of Roman Catholic parishes that are trying to bend things to uh, uh, draw you in. And you may end up going there. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, the person who's serious about what the New Testament teaches, watched that today and had to have been praying, Lord, bring your gospel to the many millions who have been given a false hope. A false hope. They've been given a false gospel. They've been given a gospel that that keeps them under the heel of a sacramental system, but never gives them peace, hangs over them the specter of purgatory. I mean, I cannot tell you how many hundreds or thousands of people are walking around right here in my beloved hometown of Phoenix, Arizona. And they're praying to Mary. They've got statues of Mary in their yard, in their home. Many of them are wearing the scapular. And they actually believe the promise that if they die wearing the scapular, that Mary will descend and and bring them personally out of purgatory before the first Saturday they're there. So much for the idea that there's no time in purgatory. Yeah, they actually believe that. And sadly, many of them are praying the same prayers that, especially the prayer that, in fact, I even found this little, this little book, the very one that I had found in a, a seat at the chapel at Thunderbird Samaritan Hospital so many years ago. They're praying the prayer to Mary to deliver them from the devil, the flesh, and Jesus. Yeah. They're praying to Mary to deliver them from Jesus because by one prayer from her, 
ye, their judge, will be appeased. And I say to you, any person who prays to Mary for deliverance from Jesus does not know the gospel and needs to hear the gospel. So once again, we've marginalized ourselves. We've put ourselves out there on the radical fringe. Why? Because we actually believe that as creatures of God, we should think, not just feel. And that God has given us his word, not so we can feel good about it, but we should listen and learn and order our lives in light of it. How unusual that seems to be. There's so many. Let me ask you a question. Whoever it was in Twitter that accused me of this earlier, I'm the one that's being divisive? Don't you think Rick Warren's being divisive? Because, see, it depends on how you define division, doesn't it? What is real division? Real division is causing division within the true body by focusing upon yourself. And I'd like to suggest to you that when we seek to get along with the world, when we seek to not offend anybody, when we seek to somehow make the very truth that the Bible says is foolishness to the world and an offense to those who are perishing, something other than foolishness and something that's other than offensive, we are the ones who are being divisive. And I won't do that. I refuse to do that. And so what I thought would just be an interesting historical event today, because I just happened in God's providence to have just come home when it happened. I wasn't going to be there. I almost left beforehand, started to tweet about it, and I started seeing the response. Oh, my, my heart was stirred. Because so many have given of themselves that we might recognize the truth of these issues, and yet so many today utterly ignorant of the Reformation. And how many today have any passion whatsoever about the issues, the truths that motivate Martin Luther? and Ulrich Zwingli, and John Calvin, and all the unnamed people who stood to lose everything and did so because the gospel was precious to them. Churches are filled today with Christians of comfort, Christians of compromise. And when it comes to the face of men, when it comes to the fear of offending men, Christians of cowardice. Eight seven 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 five three 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 four one is the phone number. I'm not even sure what I just said is legal in Canada, but we'll head up that direction and talk with Justin. Hi, Justin. Hi, James White. Um, pleasure talking to you. Yeah. I uh, got into a conversation on Facebook, and that's never really a good place to have a good debate. 
You know, I, you, I, I was about to say those exact same words. It, it would have sounded really weird if I did, but I'm glad I didn't. But anyways. Yeah, no, uh, I got a question here. Uh, anyways, we've been talking back and forth. We knew each other in Bible school. Um, and, but anyways, since then, he turned rabid Catholic. And uh, anyways, we're talking back and forth, and he keeps on bringing up things like Second Thessalonians 2.15. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. <laughs> Justin, please. Yes. Justin, I've been debating Roman Catholics since uh, the 1980s. Uh, written, okay. I've written a number of books on the subject, and I, I, I can direct you to entire debates that focus upon the fact that the assertion that you have in that text, an oral and written tradition, and, and we're not holding to the oral part, uh, is not only a violation of the context, uh, but that it's utterly untenable in light of the fact that what Paul is stating is that we are to hold fast to the gospel, which he had delivered to the Thessalonians in two ways, through preaching and through the written letter. The point that I've challenged numerous Roman Catholics on for decades now is to demonstrate that the oral tradition upon which they have defined such things as the Marian dogmas and papal infallibility and so on and so forth can be traced back to the church of Thessalonica, because Paul had said he had delivered these things orally to them. They know they can't do that. They know that the dogmas that they have defined on the basis of this alleged tradition, such as the bodily assumption, such as the Immaculate Conception of, uh, of Mary, cannot be found in early church history. And so they cannot go to that text. They cannot utilize that text. They are abusing that text to say that, well, Paul had taught these things in oral form to the Thessalonians. They knew these things. No, they did not. And history shows us that. So it's an abuse of the text, and I would highly recommend the numerous debates that we've done, which are available at aomin.org, with men like Jerry Matitix and uh, Patrick Madrid and others on the subject of Sola Scriptura, where we go in-depth on these things, or at least the book, The Roman Catholic Controversy, it has about three chapters on that, uh, where we go into okay. it. And we have other books. There's a fantastic three-volume set available that we have uh, by uh, David King and Bill Webster called Holy Scripture, that um, will probably give you a whole lot more than you actually wanted because it's 1,100 pages long. Uh, but the, the information is there. It's out there. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of folks today just, this is not a subject that uh, they've been exposed to, but it's, uh, it's definitely one that you need to be aware of. Okay. No, I was just really curious because, like, I hope the scripture is but it seems like from here, he's and he's saying that there's an authority that can be found outside of right. uh, Scripture. That, 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 Even though I, mean, I argue with them, like, is that the Muslim authority? Like, Muslims claim to have extra-biblical revelation, and right. same with the Mormons. Like, what's your justification for saying that this is him? And he just simply says, like, it's the uh, history. So, Well, yeah, fundamentally the argument would be, well, we're the, we're the ancient church, all the rest of us. It becomes extremely circular. Remember something, Justin. One of the things that, that you'll frequently fall into, that many Protestants, non-Roman Catholics will fall into, is we believe in Sola Scriptura. We spend time defending Sola Scriptura. Rare is the Roman Catholic that will honestly recognize that what they believe is Sola Ecclesia. And they will almost never allow for an examination of their positive authority claims. Because you see, what Rome is saying is, Rome will frequently say, well, we have three sources of authority. We have Scripture, we have tradition, and we have the magisterium of the church. But the problem is, it's the magisterium of the church, from their perspective, defines what is and what is not scripture. 
and also claims the ability to infallibly define what Scripture teaches, even though it's almost never done that, and claims to be able to define what is and what is not tradition, and what tradition does or does not teach. Now, if one of your three legs of authority defines the other two, how can you actually believe that you have a three-legged stool? What they believe in is sola ecclesia, the church as the final and sole authority. And when you get down to asking the question, why do you believe that, they don't have an answer because it is their ultimate authority, and they can't go any farther than that. They very rarely allow for that to be recognized. Yeah, that's, that's what I was trying to say. I was trying to say to him that if he does use Scripture to back up his authority, he's acknowledging to me that he has a greater authority than uh, that of the church. Therefore, he tried to show that there was sort of two parallel authority, tradition, and scripture. Right, so. right. I understand, believe me. Uh, I'd uh, recommend the Roman Catholic controversy to you. I think you'd find it to be helpful. All right. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Justin. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. 877-753-3341. Uh, let's uh, go to Stephen right here in Phoenix. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Pretty warm today, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Way too, way, too, way too early, but it is Phoenix, so what can I say? What can we do for I you? Know. I know. Hey, I just wanted to, you know, comment on, uh, well, first of all, thank you for your apologetic work, and uh, thank you for, you know, defending and debating um, these different issues, along with uh, the Muslim issue and, um, and other issues. Right. Um, I, would, I would just like to comment and say, uh, I agree with you, you were talking about uh, history and how important that is to, to know the history of these things, and just to remember um, that things that the Catholic Church has done throughout the years, uh, for centuries, you know, holding, you know, Europe in, in spiritual bondage while, while you know, claiming to, to be, you know, the, the truth and, and, the, and claiming to, to have the truth, but really just, you know, putting people, people in bondage and, and these sort of things and, um, and, uh, and how they oppose, you know, even uh, allowing the scripture out in, in people's own tongues and, 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 um, and if, you, if you value you know, having the Bible in your own, in your own language, and that, that's historically something that the Catholic Church has been very against for, for many years. And um, just just calling on, on how important it is to know the history. And um, as as I'm, I'm, I'm rather young, I'm only 19, and uh, I've seen the lack of understanding of, of people, Christians, my age, that do not know the history of, of these things and don't see why it's important, and, and just calling on how important it is to know about this stuff. Well, you know, Stephen, I I think, honestly, if people would study church history and they would actually find out about what uh, early church fathers said, not just quote books like the Jurgens said or something like that, but actually recognize the wide variety of perspectives that were expressed out there, they would see through the claims that Roman Catholics make. I'll, I'll never forget listening to Tim Staples a number of years ago, claiming, for example, that to give us to take us back to the papacy here, that every single early church father interpreted Matthew sixteen eighteen the way that modern Roman Catholicism does. It's almost the exact opposite in reality to that, and yet that's the kind of thing that's thrown out there, and people eat it up. They go, "Oh, that sounds great. This guy's smart. He must know that." Uh, yeah, I, I do lament, and I'm 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 thankful that at age nineteen uh, you recognize the need to know history, and I. I hope that even at age 19, you will feel a connection to church history. I, I, I had an awesome church history professor in seminary that helped me a lot with that, to come to understand that, you know, I do stand in a long line, and we don't have to 
uh, throw the early church under the bus and say they were just a bunch of Catholics, because they weren't. Not in the sense that Rome uses that term in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but there have always been God's people, and many times they have suffered at the hands of the Roman papacy. And yet, for people to forget that, I just, I just happened to look over at uh, TweetDeck here, and uh, Al Mohler said, about to talk live about Pope Francis I with Hugh Hewitt. I want to l- listen back to hear what Al Mohler has to say, uh, because I know Hugh Hewitt uh, has been real soft on this stuff, and uh, part of it all goes back to the history. I hope that you, Stephen, will continue studying that history and feel that connection with the early church and, and recognize that, you know what, uh, the early church had weird folks in it, and so do we. Anybody watch TBN recently? I mean, yeah. it's, just, it's just the way it is. It's always been that way. And what actually creates the succession over time is not some external system. It is the gospel itself. It is apostolic teaching itself. I believe in apostolic succession, but it's an apostolic succession of truth. When you preach what the apostles preached, then you're standing in apostolic succession with them. And that's the problem with Rome. Rome has departed far from that. Far, far from that. Hey, Stephen, we've got, got uh, two more calls real quick we've got to get to. We've got to try to sneak them in, okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, let's try to get these last two in. Let's talk with uh, Peter. Hi, Peter. Hey, hi, Rich. Uh, this is James. James White? Yes, it is. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the webcast is lagging, I guess. Always best to listen to the telephone. <laughs> right, right. Um, hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Hey, um, um, I wanted to ask you a question about James two twenty four. Um, now I don't, I don't uh, sympathize with Roman Catholicism, but um, to me, to me, I just it, it would create what they're talking about the contradiction. But I see whenever I read it, I see it as contradictory too. What Paul is saying, and I'm more predisposed to think that there's just an eternal contradiction overall within the Bible. Well, I'm really sorry about that. Um, I wrote a book in 2004 called The God Who Justifies. There's a 24-page chapter on James chapter 2 where we walk through the text very, very carefully. Um, What you need to understand is that James is addressing a particular context uh, and in fact, he and, and Paul are absolutely on the exact same page, using much the exact same language, but that what James is talking about, if you follow his use of the term faith, and who he's talking about justification before, is in no way, shape, or form contradicting what Paul had to say. Fundamentally, what Paul and James both say is that true saving faith will never be alone. And that the justification that is spoken of, when you talk, look, look at who he's talking about. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Rahab. He's talking about what they did demonstrated that their faith was real and alive. But when was Abraham justified? James says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. That's over 20 years before he offered Isaac on the altar. So what's he saying? He's saying that the faith that justified Abraham back in Genesis 15:6 was a real faith, it was an abiding faith, and in the offering of Isaac demonstrated its actual existence. And he's speaking against those. If you go back to verse 14, it's interesting. Roman Catholic apologists like Jimmy Aiken and others have to avoid what verse 14 is really saying, 
What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? They'll say, no, 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 you're, you're expanding too much there. No, that is the proper translation. Hey, Pistis, the article is, is being used there in such a way that it's properly translated. Can that faith, he's contrasting an empty faith that has no evidence of its existence with saving faith that does have evidence of its existence. He's not saying there's, there's that, that, that that kind of faith, that empty faith, can save. And neither was Paul. When Paul says it's by grace you're saved through faith, what, is, what does he continue to say in verse 10? For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained you should walk in them. There is perfect harmony between James and Paul on this issue. And I would just highly recommend to you, if you, know, if you can, I, I, I hate to say read my book, but I spent a lot of time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I need to... So you take kind of line that's justification, not in the... In the sense, justification before men. Well, again, how would you understand the fact that in verse 23, he quotes Genesis 15:6, which is 20 years before the offering right. of Isaac? That's the only way to understand it. And I do go through a whole lot more than that. I, I go through what dikeson means in, in James chapter 2 and, and really put a lot of work into it. So tell you right, what, right. Tra- track it down, yeah. and if that doesn't help you, then give me a call back. All right, I will. Sound good? I appreciate it, Peter. I'm going to try to sneak one more in real quick. Okay. Okay, thanks a lot. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, one more real quick. Uh, let's talk with Tom. Hi, Tom. Hey, James. How are you doing? It's been a while. with Tom Buck. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. We're about to run out of time. What can we do for you? Well, I was just going to say that I appreciate you doing this. Uh, as a pastor, the, ignor- the doctrinal ignorance that is in our church is, is due to the fact that pastor's sister not preaching the differentiating gospel. And they're not doctrinally training uh, their members in doctrine. We we have a two or a four hour course that people have to go through to become uh, members of our church. And two hours of that is spent on directly going through the differences in uh, a doctrinal differences through the Reformation. And the ignorance of people doctrinally coming to their churches is astounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, well, in fact, was it was it you on Twitter that said I doubt anyone understands what an indulgence is anyway? Yes. Yeah, and I thought it was you, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we experienced that firsthand with our daughter, Madison. She has, she's a special needs little girl that's had several open-heart surgeries. And we had a neighbor who was a Roman Catholic, and they brought us a little card uh, that said that they had paid, she had had to pay $20 in her Catholic church for them to pray for our daughter by name yes. in the, in, in the uh, Mass. Right. And I was appalled by that, not at this Roman Catholic woman, I was appalled at the fact of how they were abusing her with their doctrine. Right. And to get her name even prayed for, she had to pay $20. I mean, this, this ought to outrage us. If we love the gospel, we have to hate everything that opposes the gospel. Oh, my, you are a backwards man, aren't you? Well, I guess I am. <laughs> I'm just praying that more pastors will hear this and wake up and preach differentiating gospel. Well, I, I obviously... My, my concern, Tom, and I'm sure you share it, is that I see people, it, it's so easy to abuse a love of truth. There are so many people who are anti-Catholic bigots. They are anti-Catholics, not because they understand the gospel or because they understand how Rome perverts the gospel, but because they enjoy 
bashing somebody. And that's not why I do this. It would be so much easier for me to just get along and to say nothing about Roman Catholicism. But the reality is, if you understand the gospel first and then understand what Rome teaches, you cannot help but loathe the fact that the Roman gospel, while it sounds so similar, robs its people of true peace. They do not... Maybe you've seen it, but when I asked a man with two PhDs, Ivy League schools, a priest, Father Peter Stravinsky, who is the blessed man of Romans 4, 7, and 8, to whom the Lord will not impute sin, his first answer was Jesus. That makes lots of sense. Yeah, Jesus is the one to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And then when he realized that wasn't a good response, his only response was, I hope to be. What a tragedy. A tragedy. Absolutely. A tragedy. And we must loathe that if we love the gospel. But we need to. And, if, and as you said earlier, if we love Roman Catholic people, if we really love them, we want them to have the truth that will set them free. And why we can continue to capitulate towards Rome it just astounds me. I, I don't understand it. It does not make a bit of sense to me either, but... Thank you, Tom, for listening. Continue you, to pray for us and um, continue to stand for the truth. Thank you very much. All right. God bless. All right, folks. Had to do it. Just just had to respond. That's not, I hope it's helpful to you. I know that it is so countercultural now. And if, you're, if it bothers you to hear someone say we must loathe that which violates that which we love, please think about what real love is. Look to the Word of God. See how it defines love. Don't let your definition of love be forced upon you by a culture that does not love God. We'll see you next time. God bless. The following presentation is a production of Alpha and Omega Ministries Incorporated and is protected by copyright laws of the United States and its international treaties. Copying or distribution of this production without the expressed written permission of Alpha and Omega Ministries Incorporated is prohibited. Uh, my name is Chris Arnzen, and uh, I am with WMCA Radio. I'm really moving up in my company. I am now cleaning toilets on the seventh floor. <laughs> and I'm probably the only one in this room for a Christmas bonus got a pair of rubber gloves, so I'm doing real good. <laughs> I am, uh, I've been called by some people the Don King of theological debate. <laughs> You've heard of uh, Muhammad Ali's fights, the famous fights like the Thrilla in Manila, the Rumble in the Jungle. Welcome to the Quarrel at the Coral. <laughs> uh, just kidding. We're going to be doing anything but quarreling tonight. We don't want to quarrel. We want to pass out serious issues in love and in truth, in the spirit of truth. By the way, uh, the management of the Coral House just gave me this slip of paper before. They have it. Special announcement for all Catholics, Lutherans, and Presbyterians. Uh, smoking is not permitted in this section. <laughs> um, if you'd like to smoke, there's a lounge downstairs in the bar, in the bar area as well. Uh, 
for the uh, for the Baptists. <laughs> for the Baptists in the audience, yes, the coffee is free, but there is a 26 cup limit. <laughs> and please, no doggy bags for the pastries. <laughs> By the way, I uh, I hope you enjoyed the tie that I'm wearing. Uh, this actually is a tie that used to belong to James White. And I have a little, you know, you could call it a superstition, but I always like to wear an article of clothing worn once by the debater that I choose to support in the debate, which is why my church nearly excommunicated me when I organized a debate for Beverly LaHaye. <laughs> And believe me, her feet are a lot smaller than they look. <laughs> the uh, question is constantly asked, Chris, this is the third year I'm doing this, Chris, why are you doing this? And I'd like to try to get serious here for a moment. Uh, it puzzles me why people ask that question. But people every year ask, why are you doing this? Uh, sort of indicating to me with a sour note that they don't agree with what we're doing. Uh, well, anybody who knows anything about <clears throat> church history knows that years ago, the liberals who called themselves Christian, the liberal Christians, if you could call them that, they uh, sold out the gospel and exchanged it for a social gospel. And their social gospel consists very often of things that are very good and very important, feeding the poor, fighting racial injustice and things like that. <clears throat> but the, the problem lies in when that eclipses the gospel. Most modern uh, liberal churches, Jesus Christ has little or no place in their theology, at least no little importance. And if he does exist in their theology, it's usually a Jesus of their own invention, not a Jesus of the scripture. Well, I'm guessing that most of the people in this room tonight are conservative people who are either conservative Roman Catholics or conservative Protestants. But there is a danger that I'm warning you about. I've warned you about it in these years past. <clears throat> Religious conservatism is trading in the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own social gospel. And when I say that, I'm the first here to say that <clears throat> the crimes of abortion, I mean, abortion is a modern-day holocaust, it's murder, and this is a damnable, wicked sin. Uh, the gay rights movement is a damnable, wicked sin. Many things that we who are conservatives fight, we should be fighting. But the danger lies when we think that is the gospel to fight these things. When we think that we can link arms with people of other religions, and I'm all for co-belligerence, as Francis Schaeffer, I believe, coined it, well, four co-belligerents where Catholics and Protestants and Jews and even Mormons and even socially conscious uh, atheists can work in the political system to fight these things with every fiber of our being. But when we can equate that with Christianity, it's very dangerous. And the ecumenical movement is growing rapidly amongst conservatives to a dangerous level. Uh, my friend James White has recently written a book in response to a book published by InterVarsity Press called How Wide the Divide, written by a Mormon and an evangelical professor 
And the book leaves dangerous uh, implications. Although it is claimed by the evangelical author that it was not his intention, the book nonetheless leaves dangerous implications that there's little difference between Mormonism and Christianity, and nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, some people have uh, complimented me before. Uh, they said that I look, I look like I lost a little weight. Uh, in actuality, I have to confess, it's, this is the first time I feel comfortable enough for the group of Catholics and Protestants not to be wearing my bulletproof vest underneath the, uh, the suit. <clears throat> but I'm about to say something that may require me putting the bulletproof vest back on, uh, possibly even because of my Protestant friends out here. I happen to be an evangelical Protestant and Calvinist. And uh, I have to say something about a man that is much beloved by many Catholics and Protestants alike that, that you may not like. Uh, Billy Graham was on Larry King in February, the Larry King live show. And Larry King asked Billy Graham, you seem to get along so well with Jews and Catholics. Why is that so, even though you have many differences with them? Billy Graham's answer to Larry King was, well, we don't talk about our differences. And when I heard him say that, I had a sinking feeling in my heart that a man who has many, many numerous admirable qualities, and he's done many things good for the kingdom of God. But when he is a role model for Christians all over the world to follow, for him to say something like that is very dangerous. I, I, would, rather, uh, I would rather respond like Jesus Christ when the Pharisees were trying to silence his disciples. He said, if they remain silent, the stones will cry out. And are we, when we are sitting with our friends, our loved ones, who we care about their souls, are we not to share the most important things that we believe and live for with them? I, I ask you if, we don't know how long religious liberty and freedom in this country will last. Who knows what could happen? If you cannot share the truth of your faith with your friend, your neighbor, your uncle, your aunt, your parents, whoever you love, over a bagel and a cup of coffee. How are you going to share your faith with the a firing squad? How are you going to share your faith with a gun to your head or tied to a stake? It makes no sense. We should be diligently spreading what we believe in love and, and with truth, not, not in an ugliness, not in a uh, misrepresentation or a slander of someone else's beliefs. We should never do that. Uh, but we should seek to find the truth, learn it, embrace it, and be very vocal in spreading it. Uh, to, and especially to those we love. Because if you care about God, and you love God, and you respect God, whose truth this is, then if you love your friends whose souls you are concerned about, whether they're Jewish, Roman, Catholic, Protestant, whoever they are, we should be discussing these things and I wish that uh, Billy Graham and others who are very much in the, in the, in the spotlights of our modern religious world, I wish that they would see how very important that is, I believe. Uh, I'm just going to quickly uh, explain how I believe uh, the modern ecumenical movement is going, uh, the, the route that they're taking. 
Perhaps you uh, know the story from the Old Testament when the, the Ark of the Covenant was being transported. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained the, the Ten Commandments of God and the Holy Law, <clears throat> when the ox stumbled, a man named Uzzah reached out to touch the Ark to steady it. And God killed him on the spot. And when I read that as a new Christian, I remember how shocked I was. I said, it looked like a good thing. It looked like the right thing. It looked like something I would have done. I would have stopped it. I would have reached out and stopped that Ark of the Covenant from tumbling. That is what the modern ecumenical movement is doing. They see the world tipping with all these problems that we have, the horrendous uh, crime rate, the uh, abortion rates, and all these horrendous, despicable things. But in seeking to steady this world, they're trampling over what God has commanded. If God has commanded, do not touch the ark, don't touch the ark. So as we as Protestants and Roman Catholics and others seek to bring light into this dark world, please don't do it by trampling on the gospel of Jesus Christ and touching the ark. I would like to uh, now introduce the debaters that we have. We have two very fine men here today. Uh, you are indeed privileged to see two very qualified representatives of their respective faiths to defend their faiths. Uh, to my right is a very good friend of mine, James White. As the leading Protestant representative engaging Roman Catholic apologists in debates across the country. James White knows the issue well. He's an adjunct teaching, he's an adjunct professor teaching New Testament Greek for Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, a theologically reformed Christian apologetics organization in Phoenix, Arizona. He's the author of over a dozen books, including Answers to Catholic Claims, The Roman Catholic Controversy, and his latest, Mary, Another Redeemer, and a book on the papacy is expected soon. He currently serves as critical consultant for the New American Standard Bible's updated version and is a frequent radio guest on the Bible Answer Man broadcast with Hank Hanegraaff. He and his family belong to Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church, and you can currently hear James White every single Thursday night on WMCA Radio as the Thursday night host of The Voice of Sovereign Grace. That's 5.70 a.m. every Thursday night at 10 p.m. Here he is, James White. And my next distinguished guest and debater is Father Mitchell Pacwa. Many Roman Catholics and Protestants alike will recognize this Jesuit priest and scholar from his televised debates on the John Ankerberg Show, the author of Kingdom of the Cults and founder of the Christian Research Institute the late Dr. Walter Martin. Father Pacwa has served on the faculties of Tennessee State University, Loyola University, and the August University of Dallas, having taught such courses as Introduction to the Bible, Introduction to the Old Testament, Introduction to the New Testament, Hebrew 1, 2, 3, and 4, and master's level courses in the Psalms, the writings of St. Paul, the Johannine writings. Father Pacwa also has abilities in 12 languages, including the ancient languages of Latin, Greek, Hebrew, 
Aramaic, and Ugaritic. He currently serves as contributing editor of This Rock magazine and the Touchstone Journal, in addition to hosting his own regularly aired television program on the Eternal Word television network seen here on Long Island on Telecare Channel 25. He is also seen often on Mother Angelica Live. Here he is, Father Mitch Pacwa. I just uh, had the privilege of having dinner with uh, Father Packle before we came here tonight, and uh, I'm glad that he trusted this Protestant Calvinist to take him out to dinner. <laughs> and I can just assure you, if you see him starting to doze off during the debate, I did not touch his Pepsi. <laughs> he was in plain sight at all times. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, I'm, in a bit, I'm in a bit of a quandary here because... Uh, I am going to be the Protestant uh, in this uh, debate who organized it, and my good friend James White is the uh, Protestant debater in this debate, but I have to admit that uh, Father Pacwa is an incredibly nice man, incredibly nice man. I really got to love getting to know him, and I'll tell you why I know he may even be a little bit of a nicer guy than James White. <laughs> I, I gave them both Christmas gifts, and uh, only Father Pacwa thanked me. <laughs> I got this video. I got this video of Martha Stewart teaching you how to make nice crafts. I made this beautiful Christmas wreath for Father Pacwa, a beautiful wreath made entirely of chick tracks. <laughs> and he thanked me. He thanked me for, profusely for this gift. And meanwhile, James White, I gave him a gift, this beautiful framed painting. Spent a lot of money on this thing, this beautiful painting, framed, this beautiful painting of our president, Hillary. And <laughs> never, never thanked me for it. None, but nonetheless, I will still... I will still pray for the victory of my side tonight. <laughs> uh, our moderator is a very good friend of mine, a man that you've seen moderating all of our debates. I believe he only moderated the half of the last. <laughs> took off about, I think, about a half hour after it started. I it was a car accident. As I've uh, told you in the past, uh, this is my good friend, uh, Robert Unger, who's a conservative political activist. He's also Jewish, and uh, unlike uh, what our friend Billy Graham has said, I love talking about what I believe to Bob Unger. One of the reasons I value my friendship greatly with Bob Unger is that we can talk about these things. He knows that when I share Christ with him and share his need for Christ, that I'm not being anti-Semitic. He knows that's because I love him. And I want to share these things with him. And he has shared many things with me that have become very valuable in my life. But uh, as I said, over these past uh, three years, Bob Unger, our Jewish moderator, has become a bit confused by the different sides. <laughs> he wasn't quite sure whether the Protestants were right, wasn't quite sure whether the Catholics were right. So I've got some bad news. He's actually become Anglican. <laughs> Here he is, my good friend, and our moderator this evening, Robert Unger. 
I'd like us all now to uh, bow for a moment of silent prayer before our debate begins. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all very much for your warm welcome. The basis of the Catholic faith is in Jesus Christ. What we profess every Sunday except Easter Sunday is our creed, which is belief in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the salvation that Jesus Christ has won for us by being God incarnate who died on the cross and was raised in glory, ascended to the right hand and will come again to judge the living and the dead. The only reason that we don't profess this faith on Easter Sunday is because we renew our baptismal vows, which most of us Catholics took as babies, but each year we renew them because we want to make that commitment not just a statement, but we want to say I do to each part of our creed and that we want to affirm that as most important in the Christian faith. But along with our faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ and his saving work, and in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them, we also profess 
faith in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And tonight, it's not so much a debate on the work of Christ to redeem the human race, but rather some aspects of the church in particular dealing with the papacy. To understand this, we must start off with the foundation of the church itself. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, St. Paul tells Holy Timothy that even if he has to delay, he wants him to know how necessary, how it is necessary to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. And then he continues in verse 16 with that marvelous proclamation of faith about Christ who appeared in the flesh, was justified in the spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the Gentiles, was believed in the world, and was taken up in glory. And while the church is proclaimed here in Scripture as the pillar and the bulwark of the truth, it is that truth of Jesus Christ which we proclaim. But we also see that the church, the church as its structure, in a variety of ways, in 1 Corinthians, certainly, Jesus Christ is called the foundation of the church, which St. Paul laid, and then Apollos built upon it. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we see that, therefore, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens of the saints and householders of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is its keystone. I believe that he has in mind the western wall of the Temple Mount, which Herod the Great had built to protect the mountain and make square it off. And in the center of that big wall, we can't see it, it's kind of blocked off now by buildings, but if you go inside the, the tunnel, you can see two large 500-ton stones which Herod put there so that in earthquakes they would absorb the pressure. And I often think that St. Paul had that in mind. Jesus Christ is that keystone. He takes all the pressure of the church. But just like that stone is on the foundation of other stones, Jesus, the keystone here, is presented in this new temple of, the, of God, this holy temple to the Lord, as being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And he says that you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That we are built on top of that foundation of the apostles. And we see the same thing put in more of an image in Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 through 14. That marvelous description of that new and heavenly Jerusalem for which every single one of us Christians longs. So that the twelve foundation courses of stone have the names of the twelve apostles on them. Another image of the same thing that St. Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we also proclaim as Catholics, along with Blessed Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, and you are called in one hope of your call. You have one faith, one God, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that unity, all that faith, of that one body of Christ, which is the church, that is all built on the foundation of the holy apostles. And yet, while it is that our Lord has founded the church, as he came to do, according to scriptures, and that he's made the church the bulwark and pillar of truth, built on these twelve apostles, not on twelve ideas, on these twelve men, one of whom, of course, fell away, but was replaced by Matthias. And as a result, this is the basis of Christian belief. Christian church has to be based on what these men gave us. We know nothing else of Christ except from them. Now, this does not exclude knowing, believing, and teaching the fundamental truth about Jesus Christ, He is the truth, and all truth has its reality in him. And we must proclaim those truths of the gospel. We must call all people to have salvation in him because there is no other name by which men can be saved. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus, as he himself says in John 14. And that we believe these apostles And we accept them as the foundations of the church because they were witnesses to all that Jesus did from the baptism by John to the resurrection and the ascension. As Blessed Peter says in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Not only is their testimony confirmed in their words, but in their actions and in their blood. They preferred death rather than change their commitment and their love of Jesus Christ, not dead and in a tomb, but raised up in glory and ascended to the right hand of the Father. No matter where they went, they preached the same gospel, they taught the same truth, the same Jesus Christ, and they died for his sake. And they left this testimony, as we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, in word and letter. Not only St. Paul left it in word and in letter, but so did they. St. John himself mentions in the Gospel, as he concludes it, that there are many other things that Jesus said that could not be written in the book. And yet we know many of these. We know everything that we needed to know because of what Jesus gave to them. And because Scripture says it, we accept the tradition, whether it be written, whether it be oral. So that the Scriptures that they have left us are in the the inerrant, spirit-inspired Word of God, but also so is the the oral tradition by which we know those scriptures and everything else which they taught us. Now, it is Jesus Christ himself who has chosen St. Peter to be the chief of those apostles upon whom he built his church as its foundation, with himself as the cornerstone. And he especially designates Blessed Peter as a rock, as his name itself means, rock, on whom he would build a church. In John chapter 1, verse 42, 
After Holy Andrew led his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus, Jesus said, You, Simon, son of John, you will be called Kephas, which is translated as Petros. Jesus made a promise. Jesus does not lie about his promises. And he keeps that promise, that he will be called Kephas. We see that fulfilled, not mentioned again in the Gospel of John, but because we believe that every word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore the inerrant truth, in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19, we see how it is that our Lord fulfills the promise mentioned in John 1.42. And I love to notice this with a former New Yorker, not a resident of New York, not a native, of course, it's a native of my own home, uh, Illinois. But Archbishop Sheen used to love this text in John 6, or Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say the Son of Man is? Archbishop Sheen used to say that was the democratic approach to theology. And all their answers are wrong. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They're always wrong. You can't do democracy to come to the truth in theology any more than you can vote on mathematics. It's true or not. Then he said to them, sort of a committee approach, who do you say I am? But it's Simon Peter who answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we have to stop there as this being crucial. Because this is the faith that all Christians must proclaim. That Jesus Christ is just that. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He's not just a man. He is God made man. And I don't know. As a matter of fact, I suspect that Simon Peter hardly understood what he said. But he said it, and it was true. And this is still the gospel we must proclaim about Jesus Christ, and nothing less. And it is precisely this content of who Jesus is that is determinative for the church. This is where the church has its meaning, because the church is the bride of Christ. And without her groom, she's a widow or worse. We have to have Christ as the center, the Son of God. But secondly, we notice, as Jesus, from what Jesus says here, a most basic truth, where Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. We have to have the grace of faith to believe this. As Blessed Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit gives it to him. We need the grace of God. We need God inspiring us to understand, even to say these with faith. So also did Peter. And this, too, is the basis of our Catholic faith and of the faith of other Christians. We need God to make it possible to give us the grace to be able to have faith. But along with that, we see that next, 
that is precisely Jesus Christ's recognition of the divine origin of Peter's statement of faith that he says this most important word for us in the point tonight. And as for me, I say to you, and it's an emphatic I say to you, you singular, that you are Petros, you are Peter, and on this rock, this Petros, I will build my church. That this becomes the key of our Lord's teaching about St. Peter. This is why we Catholics look to him and his successors as having this importance, not only as Peter's prominence among the apostles, who are at the very foundation of the church, but even to this day. Peter and his successors, the bishops of Rome, have this tremendous authority. Peter is called Petros. Again, as St. John explained, that's a translation of Kepa, rock, Aramaic word. There's only one other person known from about 400 B.C. who has had this name. A man who lived in Elephantini in Egypt. Mentioned on a marriage contract. Other than that, we don't know anybody else had this name. And this 400 years later is something quite distinctive, to be called Kepa, rock. And, of course, we know the arguments, we may hear more about it tonight, that it says, you are Petros, and on this Petra I build my church. It's, you know, calling Peter a Petra would have been something of a faux pas, It'd be like calling somebody Rocket instead of Rocky. New Yorkers would understand that difference. <laughs> but in Aramaic, so the gospel, of course, is written in Greek. Scholars, Catholic and Protestant alike, recognize that behind it is an Aramaic forelaga, an Aramaic saying of our Lord, the language of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that it, it works out much better in the pun there. So that you are kefa, and on this kefa I will build my church. So this is a start. But it's not all that our Lord says. He says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I go frequently to Caesarea Philippi in the Holy Land. And in the cliff behind, about 500 feet long, a couple hundred feet high, you see the city is built right against this cliff. Our Lord has this visual image of this huge cliff of rock solid rock. And there aren't many else others around it. The rest of the hills from Mount Hermon slope down. But there's Caesarea, it's this cliff. And at the base of a cliff of the cliff is a spring, one of the three springs of the Jordan. And in ancient times it was called the Sha'are Sha'ol, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. And just as the gates of hell the name of that spring could not prevail against that cliff, just as hell cannot prevail against the church. Not because we're great. As a matter of fact, we can certainly go through the history of Catholicism and the history of the papacy, the history of St. Peter himself, and see that there's anything but immaculately conceived people who hold those offices. Sinners hold them. It's the only kind God can find anymore. They don't make the other kind. So they're sinners. 
And Allah tells them, despite that, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church as it continues to grow through all ages. And that's not, be, again, never ever is it because we're great, it's because of Christ's promise. That's the basis. And he also goes on to say, as is known to anybody who tells any jokes about heaven, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. St. Peter usually is the one in the joke. And the sense of being able to have keys is a sign of authority doubling. If you have keys, it means you can open or you can shut. But also, in light of Isaiah chapter 22, that giving keys was a sign of being prime minister in the ancient uh, kingdom of Judah. And as a result, a similar symbol is here where St. Peter is not the king. He is not the, the invisible head of the church and the authority of the church at its root. That's Jesus Christ. He's the king. But as prime minister, he stands in his place. And furthermore, besides having the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in the heavens. So that our Lord promises to back up his decisions. And we'll get to that with some points on that in a bit. But it's important for us to understand this at the outset, biblically. But we Catholics may not have chosen St. Peter. There's even another joke that goes around that analyzes each one of the disciples. Thomas is not to be trusted. He doubts a lot. Peter denies and all these other things. The most promising disciple by the standards of business management would probably have been Judas Iscariot. I'm glad that we weren't in charge. We have enough problems. And it is this man that Jesus makes the rock upon which he builds his church. When I hear that, I cannot help but think back on Matthew chapter 7, where our Lord says that if anyone who listens to his words and does them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock, and that when the rain and the storm came, it would not fall. How much more Jesus Christ would build on a rock to make sure that his house, the church, would not fall? Is he less clever than we? I don't think so. And if, if for us to obey his word make, gives us a solid rock, which is by the word, is, well, by the way, is the word Petra, then how much more will he build on solid rock? Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, shows us that our Lord Jesus Christ prays. He is the mediator between us and God. And he prays for us. And his task to this day is to pray perpetually, forever, as he stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But we see it here at the, Lord, at the Last Supper, not only in Luke's Gospel, but in John 17, a long prayer of our Savior. And many other times our Lord has prayed. But here he prays, not for the unity of the church, as he does later in the Last Supper in John 17, but here Jesus prays that Peter's faith might not fail. And that when he turns back, that he might strengthen, he tells Peter, strengthen your brethren. 
Here we see that our Lord knows that Peter's faith might fail. And he, as a matter of fact, is well aware that he'll have to repent. But he knows that when he does repent, when he does turn around, that he can command him, and it's used singular, to take care and to strengthen his brothers. And I find it interesting, as a matter of fact, most salutary, that when he prays, it is right after our Lord has told him that, that the apostles, along with blessed Peter, will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The tremendous authority he's giving to them. But he also knows that they need one to serve them as a leader to strengthen them in their, in their faith. Finally, John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Here we see that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has called his disciples to haul in the net that was filled with 153 fish, not necessarily because it's a symbol of anything, but any good fisherman remembers a catch like that. I know my biggest fish. And he has already bread and fish cooking on the fire. And at that charcoal fire, Three times he reconciles Peter who had denied him at the charcoal fire in the house of Caiaphas. And he reconciles the one who said, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I tell you I don't know the man. He reconciles that same St. Peter. Say, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep and singles him out for this ministry of leading. And again, just as our Lord, who told us to build on solid rock our faith by listening and doing his words in Matthew 7, here we see Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who knows his sheep and his sheep know him, saying to Peter, feed my lambs, my sheep, and shepherd. The good shepherd would not leave us in the hands of a hireling, but put us in the hands of another good shepherd. Now, there's some things I want to make clear about what I'm not about to defend. I will not stand here to, to explain or to approve of. A, I will not support the idea that the popes are impeccable, that is, that they are without sin. One of the great joys for me is doing a lot of reading to prepare for this debate over the last few months, and I spent a lot of time reading church history, and there are a lot of scoundrels and sinners, all of them, all of them, it's the only kind of Lord you find. So, we know the Pope's sin, beginning with St. Peter, and um, as a matter of fact, as I once said to my deceased but very good friend, much beloved friend, Dr. Walter Martin, even Dante put some popes in his inferno. He had him in heaven, too. Secondly, I will not defend the idea that every papal statement is infallible. It's not. As a matter of fact, Wilfred Ward and Louis Vuillot both wanted to have this defined. That was what they were searching for. That's one of the reasons that the Vatican Council defined papal infallibility. There were some people, the nail ultramontanists, 
This new ultramontane attitude that wanted to have everything the Pope said be infallible. That's not what we believe. That's not what we teach. And this was rejected by Vatican I. Thirdly, I will not defend the idea that the Popes are oracular, that they are inspired to give new doctrines. The Vatican Council I explicitly said that that is not what they do. They don't have new inspirations for new revelations. Infallibility does not mean that they can define new revelations, but rather that they are there to defend what Christ has left the apostles who are the foundation of the church. Fourthly, um, that since the popes are infallible, that they don't need to convene councils or synods. I'm not going to defend that. Of course they need to convene councils and synods. Every husband is the head of his family. But every husband who refuses to listen to his wife is a fool. Is that not right, ladies? <laughs> of course, you can be the leader, but you need to consult and learn what the problem is and what the issues is, are. And this is related to another point that I will not defend, that the popes know everything. Archbishop Sheen used to tell the story of the Jewish boy and the Catholic boy who argued, my rabbi is smarter than your priest. No, my priest is smarter than your rabbi. And they went back and forth. Finally, the Jewish kid said, okay, maybe your priest is smarter, but it's because you tell him everything. <laughs> they made a confession. Whereas, we, we don't say that the Pope knows it all. And that will, some of the problems that will come up with, I'm sure, come uh, in the papacy because they don't know it all. They are not omniscient. God is omniscient, not the Pope. That is not what we teach. That is not what we believe. I will not defend the idea that the Pope knows everything. That's why he needs to have councils and synods. And that when he does teach officially, that he likes to do it. The history shows that the Popes prefer to teach with the councils. Popes, as a matter of fact, on this point of not being omniscient, popes, like all of us, are born ignorant. Popes have to study and learn, which they do more or less, and popes can be and have been deceived and lied to. Sarah, I will not defend the idea that papal infallibility precludes freedom of speech at ecumenical councils. That's not true. Even when popes like Pope Leo the Great, Pope Leo I, sent his tome to the Council of Chalcedon, or, or Pope uh, Agathos sent his letter to the Council, Third Council of Constantinople, those letters don't mean that all discussion has to stop. Pope speak is here. That is not it at all. That conversation and discussion can take place and need to take place because the bishops themselves are also successors of the apostles. The same apostles whom our Lord said in Matthew chapter 18, that they have the authority to bind and to loose. And that they who are the successors of those apostles who are the foundation stones of the church, those bishops also have much to say and wisdom to give. My heartbreak over the separation of the Eastern Orthodox from the Catholics is that we miss them the way someone who's had surgery would miss a left lung. I hate to see that they're not with us because we have so much wisdom to learn with them and, of course, share with them. 
Finally, I will not defend the idea that the Pope's infallibility is personal in the sense that it refers to his personal private opinions. That's not what infallibility means. It has nothing to do with the Pope's private thoughts or ideas. It is not anything to do with, uh, about his knowledge on topics or subjects not related to faith and morals. And it's not something that he might write to a friend or say to an individual in conversation. Those are not part of infallibility. So those are things I will not defend because that's not what Catholics believe. What I will defend is two things. First of all, the primacy of the papacy. This I will defend, happily. That this means that the Roman pontiff is a successor of St. Peter, who ministered and was martyred in Rome, and that his see has his successors. We don't see the New Testament tell us about who succeeded St. Peter. As a matter of fact, you don't see any event in the New Testament, as far as I know, past the mid-60s. You know, the last thing to be written, I know, would be St. John, but he only talks up to the ascent, resurrection of our Lord. And we don't see Acts of the Apostles going past 62. St. Peter didn't die until maybe 65 or 67 even. So it just doesn't record it. But we do see that St. Paul establishes people like Timothy to continue the ministry of bishop. And that other sees are given bishops by St. Paul in Acts of the Apostles. And he gives instructions on establishing bishops and priests and deacons. And presbyter is, of course, the Greek word that is the basis of our English word priest to the German word priesthood. And so that this, these ministries are continued, and there's no reason to expect that the ministry and the primacy of St. Peter would stop with him, because the gates of hell have not stopped trying to attack the Church of Christ. And as long as the gates of hell oppose his church and oppose his truth, Christ will not let them prevail, and that that ministry of Peter will continue and will do so in his successors, the bishops of Rome. So, of course, the New Testament doesn't describe it. They stopped writing before he passed on, to, and then Linus became the next bishop. But we do see that in the history, histories of the church, like Eusebius or in Irenaeus of Lyon, that the succession of the see of Peter is described as part of the tradition of the church. And that his power of jurisdiction is truly episcopal, it is immediate, it's over all of the other rites, R-I-T-E-S. In the Catholic Church, we have, we're not all Roman Catholic. There are, in the sense of being Latin Catholic. We also have Greek Catholics, Byzantine Catholics, and Chaldean Catholics, and Melkite Rite, and Maronite Rite. I'm privileged to be able to celebrate Holy Mass with the Maronites because I know some Arabic. And so, you know, there, there are many other rites, but he has authority over all the rites of the Eastern churches and West. And he has immediate power over all the pastors, the faithful, both individually and collectively. And so this is a key part of his ministry. But I also will defend his infallibility. A, because Jesus Christ has promised to the church, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the spirit of truth, 
that he will be beside and inside the members of the church, according to John 14, verses 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth whom the Father will give in the name of Jesus, will teach you all things, remind you of all things that Jesus said in John 14, 25 and 26. And that the paraclete whom Jesus will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, is given to the disciples to be able to be witnesses. And he gives that same Holy Spirit in a special way because of the special promise to Peter so that he can strengthen his brethren, so he can have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so that he can bind and he can loose. And by infallibility, we have to keep in mind specifically what we Catholics mean. First, on the basis not of his great personal characteristics or because the choice of the church, but because Jesus Christ singled them out in recognizing that the Father gave the revelation to Peter. Jesus chose Peter for these gifts to have the keys, the binding and loosing, and to be the rock. Secondly, that this gift of infallibility is only in operation when he speaks ex cathedra, which means when he speaks in the discharge of his office of pastor and doctor of all Christians by virtue of his apostolic authority. Then he must teach it to the whole church, not to an individual, not to a part of the church, but it's only infallible when he teaches it to the whole church. Then he has to be defining a doctrine of faith and morals and nothing else to be held by the universal church. And that it is God's divine assistance by the Holy Spirit that makes this gift possible and effective in our church. For this, I give great thanks to God. It is truly a pleasure to be with you this evening. I must admit it seems somewhat unfair. However, I must apologize to Father Paco. I was looking out the window there, and someone, I don't know who would have done this, Father Paco, planted thousands of tulips right outside the window. <laughs> and it, it really seems very unfair. And the non-reformed amongst you are going, what is he talking about? But uh, <laughs> I am very honored uh, to have the opportunity of engaging in this debate this evening. Father Paco and I debated twice in January of 1991 on the Mass and on Justification in San Diego. I've done many debates since then, but in all of those times, I must admit that of all those debates, the ones I enjoyed the most, the ones I feel where the audience was most blessed because the clarity of the presentations were the two that I did with Mitch Paco. We are not up here this evening for a fashion show or a talent show, though I bet you he actually likes my tie and wishes he could wear one. Um, <laughs> we're, not, we're not here to impress you with our oratory skills. And in fact, I have mentioned as I've been speaking around Long Island for the past week, I truly hope that it is not Mitch Paco and James White that you hear this evening, but that you hear the issues. And when you leave this room, you'll have the most information upon which to understand this extremely important topic. Now, I'm going to try to focus our attention this evening. There's a great danger of information overload on this topic. There is a great danger of confusion. There are two areas in our debate. Is the papacy biblical? 
That is, does the Bible lead us to believe that the Lord Jesus established a papacy by making Peter the head of the apostles, giving to him alone the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and establishing in him an office replete with successors in the bishops of Rome? And the second area is, is it ancient? That is, when we examine the history of the ancient church, do we find that what modern Roman, Rome claims has always been the case, that the Pope in Rome is the vicar of Christ, the head of the universal church. Now, Father Paco has mentioned the issue of infallibility. That was never mentioned to me. I consider that a separate issue. I'd be glad to debate that sometime. But I think you first have to debate whether the papacy actually exists before you can whether debate whether it's infallible or not. And so I'm not going to be focusing on issues of infallibility or honorius or liberius or any of that stuff. I'm going to be focusing upon these two areas. Is the papacy biblical and is it ancient? Now first we need to focus upon Rome's claims for herself. Rome's claims for herself. Listen to the words of the great Vatican Council from 1870. We therefore for the preservation, safekeeping and increase of the Catholic flock with the approval of the sacred council do judge it to be necessary to propose to the belief and acceptance of all the faithful in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, the doctrine touching the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy. Please note that the council claims that the teaching that it presents is in full accord with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church. I continue, quote, we therefore teach and declare that, according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to the blessed Peter the Apostle by Christ the Lord. For it was to Simon alone, to whom he had already said, Thou shalt be called Cephas, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, addressed these solemn words. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever thou shalt bind on earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. It was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief pastor and ruler over all his fold in these words, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. At open variance, please listen to this, at open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord and his church, deny that Peter in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church and through the church on Peter as her minister. If anyone, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles, and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only, and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema, accursed. 
Now, this position remains valid to this day. The Second Vatican Council borrowed directly from the language of the first in saying, in order that the episcopate itself might be one and undivided, he placed blessed Peter over the other apostles and instituted in him a permanent and visible source and foundation of unity of faith and fellowship. And all this teaching about the institution, the perpetuity, the force and reason for the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff and his infallible teaching authority, this sacred synod again proposes to be firmly believed by all the faithful, end quote. What does all this mean? Let me try to summarize it. The Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter is placed in a position of primacy by the Lord Jesus himself. This primacy is one of honor, jurisdiction, and rulership. This primacy given to Peter is presented according to dogmatic teachings of the Church of Rome in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, and John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. According to Roman teaching, Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. That Christ, in conferring a primacy upon Peter, intends this to be understood to apply to Peter's successors as well, and that hence Christ is, in this passage, instituting the office of the Pope for the Christian Church. Rome further teaches that when Christ spoke to Peter and said, Feed my sheep, he was by so doing setting Peter apart as the pastor of all Christians in a way different from all the other apostles. Peter is then said to have been the Bishop of Rome. Because of this, his supposed primacy is passed on to his successors, the bishops of Rome. The form of the church that includes the papacy is said to have been instituted by Christ himself. That is, it is not merely the result of long centuries of evolution, but is instead the form of government actually instituted by the Lord Jesus. And finally, this viewpoint has supposedly been the ancient and constant faith of the Christian church. Suppose the church has always believed this to be true, and anyone who would express a different perspective is holding to perverse opinions and are, in fact, anathema. So what does Father Pacwa have to do to win the debate this evening since he is bearing the affirmative position? First, we must prove that Jesus is without question speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, and in so doing, identifying him as the rock upon which the church is built. Secondly, that the words the Lord Jesus speaks establish Peter as the prince of the apostles, the very first pope, the head of the Christian church. Thirdly, that these words of Jesus necessarily indicate the creation of an office of pope replete with successors and associated powers. Fourth, that these successors are only the bishops of Rome, not the bishops of any other city. And finally, that the Christian church has always held this to be her constant and unchanging faith. Now, I believe that Father Pacwa has a tall hill to climb this evening. He cannot merely say that the Roman position is probably true, but that it is infallibly true. Rome claims absolute spiritual authority over all Christians. She claims that the Pope can define Christian dogma and bind every single follower of Christ to that belief. For example, the Pope has defined as a dogmatic belief of the Christian faith the idea that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. He also has the power of dogmatically defining, if he chooses to do so, that Mary is co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate for the people of God. The current Pope has that ability if he chooses to do so. He hasn't done so yet. Now that's a tremendous power. Hence, the papacy is not an issue upon which one can be neutral, nor can it be proven by a string of arguments that are only possibly true, but not convincingly so. Pope Boniface made this quite clear in the papal bull Unum Sanctum, promulgated in November 
18.13.02, and he said, quote, Consequently, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, end quote. And very important, we must note the words of Satis Cognitum, the words of Leo XIII of June of 1896, an encyclical meant to define and defend and delineate the Vatican I Council's statements, quote, Wherefore, in the decree of the Vatican Council, as to the nature and authority of the primacy of the Roman pontiff, no newly conceived opinion is set forth, but the venerable and constant belief of every age, end quote. Rome's dogmatic statements do not allow for a mere development of the papacy over time. They insist that this is the teaching of Christ and the apostles, and it is the primitive form of the government in the church. And so here, if you'd like to know how I'm going to approach this, here's my outline. Examining the biblical evidence is relatively easy. There are only a few passages that Rome has dogmatically defined as infallibly teaching the papacy. Modern apologists have tremendously expanded these numbers, but without Matthew 16 and John 21, no case can possibly be made. All Roman Catholic arguments are based upon seeing in these two passages the establishment of Petrine primacy. For the historical information, I will focus primarily upon two things. The fact that the early church did not interpret these key passages the way Rome does, thereby disproving her own claim that this is the constant faith of the church, and upon the Council of Nicaea as an illustration of how the concept of the Roman papacy was not in existence in the year 325 A.D. But the first thing we must do and the thing we must spend most of our time on is Matthew chapter 16. The foundation of the papacy, or is it the identity of Jesus Christ? It's already been read in your hearing. You'll probably have it memorized by the end of the evening. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you, the pronoun is singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All of us agree that this is a singularly important passage. It is being used tonight, however, to teach us that the impetuous Peter who here speaks in behalf of the rest of the apostles, is in fact hereby made the foundation of the church, the prime minister of the kingdom of God, the first pope with full jurisdictional authority over every person who names the name of Christ. We are likewise told that here we have the establishment of an office of pope involving successors who will sit on the seat of a bishop in a church 1,500 miles distant and not at the time of the speaking of these words even in existence. Now, anyone familiar with the comments of scholars on this passage is aware of the multitude of different positions taken about it. I would first like to provide a straightforward interpretation of the passage and then discuss some of the areas of dispute. The central theme of this passage is the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Any interpretation that takes the focus off of Jesus as the Messiah is missing the point. Jesus' questions to the disciples about the opinions of the multitudes and then their own viewpoints are all directed toward his own person, his own identity. When Peter speaks up and confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is confessing the faith of all of the disciples, not merely himself. He is speaking for them all, as he so often does. Jesus' pronouncement of blessing upon Peter is not due to any inherent goodness in Peter. 
but is due to Peter as being the recipient of a great blessing from the Father. The Father has revealed to Peter the true identity of Jesus Christ, and of course, this revelation was given to the other apostles as well. We can hardly think they're all sitting around going, I had never thought of that. I had never thought that Jesus was the Christ. <laughs> the point of Jesus' words is that it requires the work of the Father to accurately reveal the Son. The subject of the passage remains the identity of Christ found in the confession of Peter. When the Lord says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, the focus does not change. This is seen, I believe, in the fact that the Lord is addressing Peter directly. When he says it does not change, Jesus is not here speaking of the identity of Peter. He is still talking about himself and his church. This is plainly seen by continuing on through verse 20 where we read, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. The focus never shifts from Christ to anyone else, including Peter. Now the rock of which the Lord speaks is that common confession made by all who are part of the church. Jesus is the Christ, the Son, living God. I believe this is seen by focusing upon the fact that while the Lord is addressing Peter directly, he changes from direct address to referring to something else, this rock, when speaking of Peter's confession. He does not say, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. Instead, you have a clear distinction between Peter, the Petros, and the use of the demonstrative pronoun, this Petra, this rock, the confession of faith upon which the church is built. Now, this statement is followed by the promise to, at some time in the future, give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. I emphasize this is a promise, for the verb is future intense. Jesus gives nothing to Peter in this passage. Jesus does not here in this passage give anything to Peter in the way of keys. Yet when we see this authority given in Matthew 18, 18, it is given not to Peter alone, or even primarily, but to all the apostles, and that using the exact same language, word for word, regarding binding and loosing. If someone wishes to say that Peter receives the keys in distinction from the other apostles, as their superior, they are forced to admit that the giving of these keys is never recorded for us anywhere in Scripture, a strange thing indeed for something supposedly so fundamental to the constitution of the church itself. I also point out that according to von Derlinger, the early fathers, quote, held the symbol of the keys as meaning just the same as the figurative expression of binding and loosing, end quote. I mention only briefly another point that is often ignored when looking at this passage. Did the apostles interpret these words as setting Peter apart as their leader? The answer is obviously no. Not only did they continue to argue amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest, something that is rather silly if, in fact, they already knew Peter was their leader, but over and over again in the New Testament, we find evidence that the other apostles viewed themselves as Peter's equal, not his inferior. This can be seen in Paul's treatment of Peter as the apostle to the Jews in Galatians, his rebuke of Peter in the same book, the role Peter takes in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council as a participant, not the Pope, and the fact that in his own letters he describes himself as a fellow elder, not as the vicar of Christ on earth and supreme leader of the Christian faith. When we look at the patristic information regarding this passage, we find just as wide a variety of interpretations as we find in scholarly literature. It is easy to understand why many Roman Catholic scholars felt it necessary to leave communion with Rome following Vatican I, for any person slightly familiar with patristic interpretation, knows and would never say that the Church has always interpreted this passage as it is interpreted by the Council. But before documenting this, I wish to quote a passage from Dr. Salmon that is very important. 
After going through the various interpretations found in the patristic sources, he writes, quote, but none of these can be reconciled with the interpretation which regards this text as containing the charter of the church's organization. A charter would be worthless if it were left uncertain as to whom it was addressed or what powers it conferred. So that the mere fact that fathers differed in opinion as to what was meant by this rock, and that occasionally the same father wavered in his opinion on the subject, proves that none of them regard this text as one establishing a perpetual constitution for the Christian church. End quote. It is very important to note, then, that when the Roman Catholic advocate makes Matthew 16 the very charter of the papacy, he is by so doing, in reality, separating himself from the early church, who saw no such thing in this passage, but instead allowed for a multiplicity of interpretations. Now, the French Roman Catholic Lanoy and, Pastor, uh, and uh, Father Pacwa has this material with him, surveyed the patristic evidence and found 17 citations supporting the concept that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. Please note that this does not mean that all 17 of these fathers also felt that this meant that the Bishop of Rome was a pope, but only that they saw Matthew 16 and the phrase, this rock, as referring to Peter. However, he also found 16 citations that identified the rock as Christ himself, he found 8 that identified all the apostles together as forming the rock of Matthew 16, and he found 44 citations indicating that the rock of Matthew 16 was the confession of faith made by Peter and Jesus Christ. If we add these numbers together, we find that the Roman position, which claims to have always been the faith of the Catholic Church, actually represents, in this survey, 20% of the fathers. 80% of the time, then, the early fathers expressed in Vatican I's words perverse opinions at the very best. I might note in passing that even as late as the Council of Trent, one can find even that council referring to this passage as mentioning the faith that Peter expressed. You can find pretty much the exact same data in Edward Denny's response to Sadus Cognitum. He points out, however, that a number of fathers end up in more than one category since they interpreted the passage in more than one way. Now, the Jesuit Maldonatus, whose testimony should be even more welcome this evening, I would hope, says the following, There are among ancient authors some who interpret on this rock, that is, on this faith, or on this confession of faith in which thou hast called me the son of the living God, as Hilary, Gregory Nissen, Chrysostom, and Cyril of Alexandria. St. Augustine, going still further away from the true sense, interprets on this rock, that is, on myself Christ, because Christ was the rock. But origin on this rock, that is to say, on all men who have the same faith, end quote. Was Maldonatus correct? Most definitely so. Let's look, for example, at Hilary's statement regarding Matthew 16, 18 as found in his work, De Trinitate, Book 6, Chapter 37. Quote, This faith it is, which is the foundation of the church. Through this faith, the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. This is the faith which has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. End quote. Indeed, as one reads all of Chapter 37, one finds Hillary referring to each of the prime texts upon which the papacy is built, including John 21 and Luke 22, and yet not once mentioning the papacy. Can you imagine a modern Roman Catholic apologist citing all three of these passages and not mentioning the papacy in passing? From whence cometh this perverse notion that the passage here refers to the faith of Peter's confession and not to Peter himself? Well, was it not the common belief of Christians for centuries before this, that this passage referred to Peter, thus establishing the papacy? Did not Leo XIII insist that this has been the, quote, constant belief of every age, end quote? Did not Vatican I insist that the Catholic Church had always understood these passages to teach Petrine primacy and the papacy? How could Hillary be ignorant of such a basic truth? And how could he be joined by the likes of John Chrysostom or Gregory Nazianzus? How... 
Juggle? No, I've never really tried that. Thank you very much. I was referring to the number of fathers who viewed these passages in another way. How could these great men and preachers be ignorant of such a basic truth, unless, of course, it wasn't a basic truth at all? But what of the great Augustine? Surely many are aware of his statement in his Retractionis regarding this passage and its meaning. I shall not take the time to read it yet once again. I would point out, however, that Augustine left his readers to decide how they would interpret the passage. May I ask all of us to think seriously about what it means that the great Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, could think that how one views this passage is a matter of freedom when Vatican I tells us it is a matter upon which the anathema can and should be used. Can we not see in this the tremendously huge amount of evolution that has taken place between the early part of the 5th century and the latter part of the 19th? In fact, I might note in passing that Dr. Furlich said, quote, the most astonishing fact is that in the entire Middle Ages, in contrast to the polemical literature of the period, specifically exegetical literature universally made the equation rock equals Christ, not rock equals Peter. And I agree with William Cathcart, who wrote with reference to the patristic interpretation of the rock, quote, and outside of Rome, for the first five centuries of our era, no Christian father of any note dreamt that this saying gave Peter the sovereignty of the church, end quote. So the interpretation I have put forward was given by 44 of the early fathers, more than twice as many as any other view. Some include St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. Chrysostom, St. Ambrose, St. Hilary, St. Augustine, St. Gregory the Great, many individuals. To quote just one, John Chrysostom, one of the greatest biblical exegetes of the ancient church, he said, quote, having said to Peter, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, and of having promised to lay the foundation of the church upon his confession, not long after he says, get thee behind me, Satan, end quote. And elsewhere he said, and listen carefully to this one, quote, upon this rock, he did not say upon Peter, for it is not upon the man, but upon his own faith that the church is built, and what is this faith? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, end quote. Now, the Roman, Catholic, the Roman Catholic may disagree with my interpretation. That's fine. The problem is that my interpretation makes perfect sense. It does not require giant leaps of illogic to see how I came to my conclusions. And it is obvious that my position has been held by Christians from the earliest days of the Christian faith until now, and in point of fact carries the most weight of the early fathers behind it. In fact, I would challenge Father Paco to show me one person outside the Bishop of Rome in the first five centuries of the Christian Church who taught that this passage establishes everything the Vatican Council said was, in fact, the constant faith of the universal church, or as Pope Leo XIII put it, the constant belief of every age. Now, let's say Rome can present an equally likely interpretation, though obviously without the historical support my own position carries. In such a case, the Roman position fails. Why? Because, as we have seen, Matthew 16 is the foundation of the entire concept of the papacy. Rome has infallibly declared this verse to so teach. If it is not here, it's nowhere. Every other passage cited must assume this passage as its foundation. Yet the very existence of a viable, logical, rational, reasonable alternative to the Roman interpretation makes the Roman interpretation just one of many, and as such it is not supported with the structure built upon the passage by Rome. Rome cannot simply provide us with a possible alternative, but must be able to prove beyond all question the impossibility 
of all other interpretations, yet this cannot be done. Now, as mentioned in passing, the idea of Isaiah chapter 22 being relevant to Matthew 16. So I want to comment briefly on this attempt by Roman Catholic apologists to apply Isaiah chapter 22 and the key of the house of David to Peter himself in Matthew chapter 16. Such an attempt at connection is logically necessary for the Roman position, for there must be some effort made to establish succession in this passage, for Matthew's words make no mention of any successors to Peter. Yet upon what basis do we identify the keys, plural, of the kingdom of heaven, which are associated plainly with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the key, singular, of the house of David, which is messianic in nature? And should we not accept the interpretation given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he cites Isaiah 22:22 of himself in Revelation 3, 7, quote, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, end quote. Jesus has, present tense, the key of David. He does not say that he gives this key to anyone else. Indeed, when we look at how the Lord introduces himself in each of these letters, the description set him apart from all creatures. Should we not then reject such an obvious attempt at eisegesis and instead stay with the plain meaning of Scripture and let Jesus interpret Isaiah 22:22 for us? Now, the other passage that is used is John chapter 21. You heard it read, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. In commenting on this passage, Cyril of Alexandria said the following, If anyone asks for what cause, he asks Simon only, though the other disciples were present. And what he means by feed my lambs and the like, we answer that St. Peter with the other disciples had already, chosen, had already been chosen the apostleship, but because, meanwhile, Peter had fallen, for under great fear he had thrice denied the Lord, he now heals him that was sick and exacts a threefold confession in place of his triple denial contrasting the former with the latter and compensating the fault with the correction, end quote. Here we have the gracious Lord restoring the apostle who, in his brash impetuosity, had promised to follow him even to death and yet had denied him three times. The threefold question of Peter, followed by the command to feed or shepherd Christ's sheep, is restorative in nature. Nothing in the passage would even begin to suggest to us that this means that the other apostles were not likewise commissioned to feed and pastor Christ's flock on an equal basis with Simon Peter. There is no indication that only Peter is told to shepherd God's flock, nor that all others who shepherd the flock do so derivatively from Peter's supremacy. Indeed, if such were the case, Paul seems to have been ignorant of this, for he instructed the Ephesian elders in Acts 20:28 20, to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood, end quote. Paul does not say, as Peter is the chief shepherd, you act as under-shepherds for the flock of God. No, again, the only way that such an understanding can be found is if we take a much later development and read it back into the text as our Roman Catholic friends are forced to do. This passage in no way sets Peter apart as the prince of the apostles. Indeed, it shows that he was in need of special pastoral care on the part of Christ. And so we see that in the case of the two primary passages, 
used by Rome dogmatically to present papal primacy, both the texts as they stand in Scripture and the history of the interpretation of these texts stand inalterably opposed to the modern claims of Roman Catholicism in regards to the papacy. Given that this is the very foundation of the claims of the papacy, we are forced by the simple weight of this information alone to reject the Roman position. Now, in the few moments I have left, I want to address one other issue of history, and that is the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea provides us with yet another fact that is contrary to papal claim. It is to be found in Canon 6 of that council, and it reads as follows. Let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail, that the Bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the Bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges, end quote. Notice that the Bishop of Rome is not here given universal sovereignty, but is instead seen as an equal, one with jurisdiction in a particular geographical area, and that geographical area was limited, not worldwide. Yolland noted regarding the Council of Nicaea that, quote, the first ecumenical council knew nothing of the doctrine of papal supremacy, end quote, and with reference specifically to the language of Canon 6, it, quote, is not what would be natural on the part of any assembly of Christian bishops who believe that Christ had given to the Roman See a plenitude of jurisdiction which differed not only in degree but in kind from that of any other see whatsoever, end quote. In Canon 6, nothing is mentioned about Peter or the Vicar of Christ. Indeed, I note in passing that the first man audacious enough to allow himself to be called the Vicar of Christ seemingly was Galatius I in 495, half a millennia after Christ came to earth and 450 years after the true Vicar of Christ came to minister in the church, that being the Holy Spirit of God. But as Kelly notes, the use of the title Vicar of Christ did not become current for popes until the reign of Hadrian IV in the middle of the 12th century. But returning to the topic of the Council of Nicaea, I wish to point out that here at probably the most important council in all of church history, we not only do not find any papal supremacy, we find quite a bit of evidence that is contrary to such claims. First, why did no one inform Constantine that all he had to do was send word to the Bishop of Rome and obtain an infallible ruling from the Vicar of Christ in the person of the Pope so that all Christians everywhere would obey? Obviously, because no one had thought of such an idea. Constantine called the council together, again seemingly ignorant that he should have had the Bishop of Rome do that. And again, no one else seemed to mind because they had never thought of it either. The current Bishop of Rome at the time, Sylvester, did not attend, pleading old age, but sent two presbyters in his place. History records that Rome had little or nothing to do with the events at Nicaea. It was not the Bishop of Rome who undertook the defense of the Nicene faith during the years of the Arian ascendancy that followed Nicaea, but the Bishop of Alexandria, the great Athanasius. Indeed, one might note in passing that while Athanasius was forced from his see five times, yet remained unbowed, Liberius, Bishop of Rome from 352 to 366, yielded and signed the Arianized Sirmium Creed. Be that as it may, the very fact that the Council of Nicaea was convoked is a strange thing indeed, if in fact Roman claims are true. Would it not have been much easier to simply ask the Pope for a ruling on such a central doctrine as the deity of Christ? But history will not allow for such simplicities. Even when Nicaea had concluded its proceedings, its creed had to fight for survival for 60 years thereafter, and listen to this, despite the fact that Roman bishops, excluding Liberius' last, defended it. Again, it is plain that just because the Bishop of Rome took a particular position was no guarantee that all of the Christians would follow suit. Why is this? Because all of the Christians did not look to the Roman bishop as the final authority in matters of faith and morals.
Why are we here this evening? This year's debate is the completion of last year's debate. Last year, I defended my ultimate authority, sola scriptura, the God-breathed scriptures. This year, we're looking at the ultimate authority in the position that denied sola scriptura, and that is the person of the Pope, who can speak infallibly for God. Certainly, none of the things that that's, uh, Father Pacwa mentioned, I would even attempt to present in the things he would not defend, and have not presented in my works, my written works and debates on this subject. But what we do have to focus on is this, my friends. If the papacy is true, then it is a terrible sin for any one of us not to bow to the God-ordained structure of the church. And if the Pope in Rome is God's, God's ordained leader of the church, then those of us who do not follow him are in sin and in danger of our very souls. But if he is not, if the papacy is not biblical, if the papacy is not ancient, then the Pope is a usurper of authority that has never been given to him. And the dogmas that he defines as being definitional of the Christian faith cannot be bound upon the Christian conscience. And the person who follows such an individual who takes authority that is not in actuality his is in tremendous spiritual danger. It is important what we discuss this evening. Let's focus our attention upon it. Thank you. Okay, now we'll have two 12-minute rebuttals, and then 10-minute break after we have two 12-minute rebuttals. By the way, I like your tie. <laughs> but I like better the fact that I don't have to choose a collar to fit my shirt. They all match. When, when we take a look at the evidence of history. Um, again, as a Catholic, I'm so delighted uh, to be Catholic. And not really delighted because it's a lot of fun, but it is. But also precisely because of what uh, Mr. White did say, that this, if this is the way that God has established the church, then yes, I want to be with it. And the question in the, so many ways to approach this, and you know, we have, it would take courses of work and lots of years to do so, but let me make some responses. First of all, let me deal with the question from the Council of Nicaea uh, real quickly. That's, that's an important canon, canon number six of Nicaea. However, one of the things that we must do when we look at history to the best of our abilities, look at the context. What was the context of that canon, and how does it continue? It continues on that, in general, the following principle is evident. If anyone is made bishop without the consent of the metropolitan, this great synod determines that such a one shall not be a bishop. It went on. Why, why did it bring that up? Because this canon came about when a certain bishop, Miletios of Nicopolis, who lived in that area, was consecrating bishops without permission of the Patriarch of Alexandria. The issue wasn't one of Alexandria over against Rome, 
or Antioch or Jerusalem, the other patriarchates, and then the new patriarchate, which was declared to be second to old Rome, Constantinople. But rather, it was an issue that someone had infringed on the rights of the patriarch of Alexandria in ordaining bishops, and this council was correcting that error with no reference to Roman problems at all. And it's just simply using Rome as a model that they, Rome, the Bishop of Rome is the Metropolitan of Italy, and that bishops have to be approved by him, as well as as the Patriarch of Antioch and Jerusalem, etc. So that really has nothing to do with papal infallibility. And secondly, the issue that you bring up, uh, because you brought it up in other uh, debates, about why didn't Constantine just go to the Pope if he's infallible. That's exactly one of the things that I said we wouldn't have to defend. Infallibility of the Pope doesn't mean that nobody can't talk about issues. No, these things can be brought up. Councils can be called. And as a matter of fact, following the model of the Council of Jerusalem, it's much more typical for the Pope, including Pius IX, during the First Vatican Council, and John XXIII and Paul VI in the Second Vatican Council, to not participate. They said, oh, and let the bishops discuss freely. That's, that's one of the things they love to do and they allow. I think they love it because they do it. Even at Trent, the Pope wasn't there. He sent legates. Members, in fact, of my own order uh, were his theologians. He had legates there. He let the bishops discuss freely the issues. So this is something that's very important and that's not contrary to the papal ministry, that others can initiate the issues of councils, etc. So that's fine with us. Now, in regard to history, I can't go into every single point of history. I was having available a book called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, there would be a lot of points of disagreement, to be sure. But I'll tell you at least this much. If you get this book, you'll find citations. And even if you don't like the citations, it will let you at least know where you can go to start finding them yourself. So it's a good, it'll save you a lot of initial legwork about seeing different statements on the papacy. And I highly recommend it, at least as a starting source for knowing where to look among the fathers of the church, who are themselves, for the most part, Catholic bishops and priests, not Protestant ministers. Even though many of them were married. But they were Catholic bishops and priests, and you, know, you can find out what they said in the early church. And again, even if you disagree how, with the way these authors have organized it, go and look it up yourself. Do the legwork. Do the, do the research. Now, in terms of some other issues, was this a concept that the name is the primacy of the papacy? Is it something in history? And I was reminded of a, a story that a priest recently told me. He's, I had mentioned I'd been in uh, Borneo and Singapore, and one of the highlights of the trip was holding an orangutan on my lap. And he said, you know, I just baptized a baby that kind of looked like an orangutan. It was the ugliest baby I ever saw. And you know what? The mother came up to me and said, isn't he beautiful? <laughs> and the priest said, you know, but, but that's in some ways something like the, the situation of the church. A baby 
has all kinds of potential. That child did not see ugliness. She saw what her baby could be and that it's hers. And she saw the potential for a genius, the potential for a great scientist or musician or who knows what, but it's the potential and her dreams for that child are what she's looking at. And she's not being objective and she shouldn't be. So also the church. Do we see that everything is full-blown in the church at its beginning? No, we don't. Full-blown. But do we see that it's there in potential? Yes. And do we see that potential developing through the church's history? I believe so. So that I do believe that this is the God-established way for the church to exist with the Pope at its head. Let me give some examples. First of all, most of us Catholics will look to uh, Holy Clement. Clement was the first pope of that name. He was the success, su successor after Linus and then Cletus and then Clement. And in 95, he sent an epistle to the church at Corinth because of a problem they had with schism. They had kicked their priests out and they wanted other priests who were more charismatic. And so he writes to them about unity. And as a matter of fact, he apologizes that he delayed so long even though St. John was certainly alive still at that time in Ephesus, closer to Corinth, they sent to uh, St. Peter's successor, Clement. Then we see lots of fathers talking about the role of the papacy as being the successor of Peter and of having you know, various you know, uh, kinds of authority. For instance, Tertullian, in his De Prescriptione Heresis, speaks of Peter as distinct from Paul and apart from Paul as ordaining Clement. We see Clement of Alexandria in his um, uh, in Eusebius, History of the Church, is mentioned as speaking of Peter uh, as proclaiming the word publicly at Rome. We see in a poem against Marcion, Marcion was a heretic, the son of a bishop, Gotta watch how fast you say that. His own father excommunicated him for heresy. And this poem against Martian uh, says how Peter bade Linus to take his place and sit on the chair whereon he himself had sat. Alright? And that this chair is the cathedral. We see that Gaius calls Pope and in the year two fourteen calls uh, Pope Victor the thirteenth Bishop of Rome after Peter according to Eusebius' history of the church. Hippolytus, who himself you know, tried to make himself pope, and he was the first of the anti-popes, but he and the, and the pope who was true uh, settled the differences when they were both in prison and were dying as martyrs, and they advocated mutually, and another man took their place. But he counts Peter as the first bishop of Rome, according to the Dic Dictionary of Christian Biography, volume 1, page 577. St. Cyprian, in his uh, letter to Antoninus, uh, speaks of the, uh, the place of Peter and the chair of Peter in his epistle to Cornelius. Now, even though St. Cyprian did have his disagreements with the papacy, by the way, and later on argued with him, to be sure, but as it turns out, St. Cyprian was considered wrong by the councils because Cyprian's position was that heretics needed to be rebaptized. And later on, not only popes, but also councils rejected that. Heretics do not need to be rebaptized. So, uh, in his disagreement with the papacy, 
St. Cyprian was wrong. And furthermore, he never separated himself from union with the Roman Church. Also in uh, Firmilian, in his epistle to Cyprian, uh, written in 257, speaks of the succession of Peter in the chair of Peter. Um, Eusebius, in his Chronicles, uh, says that, uh, written in 314, says that Peter was 25 years the Bishop of Rome, and he calls Linus I after Peter to tame the Episcopate, Victor the Thirteenth, uh, uh, Bishop of Rome after Peter. Um, St. Athanasius, who was mentioned, also calls Rome the Apostolic Throne in his history of the Arians. That again and again and again, I, I can pile these up, and this book, Jesus, Peter, and the Keys, has hundreds of similar statements. Hundreds. And if you disagree with that, it's absolutely fine. You know, but look at them. And again, don't trust even just that they're here. But this is the place to start, so you can know where to start looking. So that we Catholics look to this history. We look to, uh, for instance, the first schism between the East and the West. The, the Acacian schism was healed when Pope Formistus, uh, in 517, wrote a formula that was used not only by him to reconcile the Eastern bishop and was signed, which recognized the fullness of this authority that the Catholic Church recognizes. But the, the same uh, was principle, the same document was also used by Pope Agapetus in 536 uh, when he was in Constantinople and that there was a patriarch there named Anthemus who was himself a monopolite, that is, he believed that Christ only had one will, not two, not two. And Pope Agapetus would not confirm him. He had the authority to confirm the patriarch of Constantinople. The man ran away, and instead, Pope Agapetus made Menas, uh, M-E-N-A-S, Menas, the uh, next patriarch. They had that authority. They exercised it early on. Thank you. These rebuttal periods are always far, far, far too short to get to everything you would like to get to. Now, Father Paco again brought up the issue of papal infallibility at the Council of Nicaea. I am, I am not addressing the issue of papal infallibility. Uh, I cannot address the issue of papal infallibility tonight. I'd be glad to do so at some other point. I raise the issue of the Council of Nicaea because if, as Rome has dogmatically stated, this is the constant belief of every age, that this is the way that these passages have always been understood, and that this is the form of church government established by Christ himself. Not the idea of an ugly baby growing up to be someone beautiful, but according to Rome's dogmatic teachings, that this is the way it has always been, then what Nicaea did made no sense in that canon, because it limits the Roman jurisdiction to its own area and gives equal authority to other of the metropolitan seas. The simple fact of the matter is, Rome says today that they have ultimate authority over everybody else. Nicaea had no concept that that was in fact the case. Now you were, you were directed to a book I happen to own as well, called Jesus, Peter, and the Keys. This book is the single best example you could ever find of what's called the Peter Syndrome. 
The Peter syndrome is a deadly disease rampant amongst modern Roman Catholic apologists. And it is the disease that makes you see every reference to Peter anywhere in an early father as somehow relevant to the bishop in Rome. Even if that father never makes that connection himself, never shows that he believes the bishop of Rome is the vicar of Christ on earth, never says that Peter's successors sit only on the, on the seat in Rome, it doesn't matter as long as the early father says something nice about Peter, therefore he is in support of the, of the bishop of Rome. I am serious. I have read the book. I had this material before it was published, and it was said that this gives you some, uh, saves you some legwork only if you want to see only those passages from the Father, not if you want to see everything the Father has to say on an issue. And in fact, I would suggest if you actually look into the early fathers and read them as a whole, if you want some other works, I would uh, suggest Denny's work on papalism, Salmon's book on the infallibility of the church. Yeah, they're hard to get hold of these days, but they can provide you with far more extensive and fair citations that do not misrepresent the issue. And of course, in the back, someone's point holding up Jesus, Peter, and the Keys by your friend Bill Webster, which would also help you in that way. Now, I must emphasize to you, we cannot deal with this issue tonight on the level of, well, it was just a development. It was just a matter of potential. Do Roman Catholics believe Vatican I, believe Leo XIII, or not? I have a tremendous amount of respect for Mitch Paqua, and so I'm not going to believe that he doesn't believe those sources. Those sources are what lay the foundation for the debate tonight. Last year, I, I agree with my ultimate authority. My ultimate authority is the scripture, so I'll be held accountable for what it says. Well, if the ultimate authority for the Roman Catholic is the infallible magisterium of the church, the infallible magisterium says, it's always been understood this way, this has been the faith of every generation, then I would submit to you that the development hypothesis made so popular by John Henry Cardinal Newman is an abandonment of the field of historical battle. And it is a tacit recognition that if you actually look at the early church, you will not find the early fathers believing everything that Vatican I said. And I reiterate my challenge. Show me one early father that believed that Jesus in Matthew 16 says that Peter's the rock, that by doing so he's setting Peter apart from all the other apostles, that he gives to Peter alone the keys, that these are separate from the power of binding and loosing, that Peter then becomes the Bishop of Rome, and that the only successors to which these words are relevant are the successors of Peter in Rome, not any place else, and that this establishes the Bishops of Rome as the universal head of the church. Show me one man outside of the Bishop of Rome himself that ever claimed that for himself in the first five centuries. You can't do it because nobody did. They did not believe that. Now, some examples. Uh, Father Paco talked about Clement. I, I suggest you read the epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. You'll find all through there. In fact, I failed badly, and I will admit this in front of you all, I failed badly when I debated Father Paco on a question he asked me once about justification by faith. There's a great passage on justification by faith alone in Clement. I just wanted to make up for that uh, error. In fact, someone here this evening pointed that out to me uh, years ago electronically, and now, now I'm correcting that. Read it. It talks about all sorts of wonderful things, but you know what you find out when you read Clement? There's a multiplicity of elders in Rome at this time. Clement doesn't say, I as the Bishop of Rome. There's a multiplicity of elders. This is extremely important. Patristic scholar J.N.D. Kelly has written a fascinating work entitled The Oxford Dictionary of Popes. One of the striking features that many seem to miss in working through this reference source is to be found as an example in his entry on Anacletus, who Kelly notes is second in the earliest succession list, 
which did not include Peter as Bishop of Rome, reflecting uh, Irenaeus' statement that Peter and Paul made Linus the first bishop, and third on a later list that introduced the novelty of Peter as the first bishop. The words seem so innocuous that one might well miss their impact. Listen, quote, His actual functions and responsibilities can only be surmised, for the monarchial or one-man episcopate had not yet emerged in Rome. End quote. Did you catch that? Kelly notes in the days of Anacletus, in fact, all the way into the middle of the second century, there was no one, one monarchial episcopate in Rome. This truth is reflected in Clement's epistle to the Corinthians, where a plurality of elders is seen. Ignatius, as well, makes no mention of a bishop when he writes to Rome, and this fact has been generally acknowledged to be the case. But think about what this means. We are told that Peter's supposed authority is invested in his successors as bishop singular of the Church of Rome. Yet the historical fact is that the Church of Rome didn't think she needed a single bishop until a century after Peter had died. Indeed, the confusion of later succession lists may well be due to the fact that later men, assuming that there had always been just one bishop at Rome, attempted to trace such a succession through the early period when in fact there had been multiple bishops or elders at Rome. Are we to believe that Peter did not give proper instructions to the church so as to have one bishop elected to whom could be given the keys of heaven itself? Can we imagine what the conciliarists of the 15th century would have done with this information? Obviously, we see that the Church of Rome felt no need to have a single bishop, a single supposed successor to Peter or Paul or anyone else, and that is highly, highly significant. Father Paco also mentioned Tertullian making a statement about what Tertullian stated. But I would again suggest you read what Tertullian actually said. He absolutely rapaciously regales the Bishop of Rome, insulting the Bishop of Rome, calling him Pontifex Maximus, which in those days was the chief priest of the pagan cults, and calling him Bishop of Bishops. And every word that he used was meant to be the worst insult it could be. And the amazing thing about church history is a thousand years later, those are titles that the Bishop of Rome actually wears. Yet when they were first used by Tertullian, he was insulting the Bishop of Rome and saying that he was teaching falsehood. Cyprian, very shortly before his martyrdom, Cyprian presided over the Seventh Council of Carthage, which gives us the following information. For neither does any of us set himself up as a Bishop of Bishops, nor by tyrannical terror does any compel his colleagues the necessity of obedience, since every bishop, according to the allowance of his liberty and power, has his own proper right of judgment and can no more be judged by another than he himself can judge another, end quote. Sound like they believed in the Roman primacy? It is easy to recognize a reference to Stephen, the bishop of Rome with whom Cyprian had clashed in previous years, in the rebuke of the title Bishop of Bishops. Why is this important? because Cyprian is truly one of the greatest obstacles to any serious acceptance of Roman claims regarding papal primacy. While he is often cited by Roman apologists, it is only at the expense of the fullness of his teaching that this is done, and that's what you get in a book like this. You see, Cyprian was one of the minority of the early fathers who saw Peter as the rock of Matthew 16. Indeed, he saw Peter as the symbol of ecclesiastical unity, and because of this, some of his words, if relieved of their context, lend support to Roman contentions. However, a full examination of Cyprian's words and actions is the death knell for Roman pretensions in regards to Cyprian. First, we know Cyprian's rejection of Stephen's claims to authority over the North African seas in his own words, quote, 
Neither can it rescind an ordination rightly perfected that Basilides, after the detection of his crimes and the bearing of his conscience, even by his own confession, went to Rome and deceived Stephen, our colleague, placed at a distance and ignorant of what had been done and of the truth, to canvas that he might be replaced unjustly in the episcopate for which he had been righteously deposed. Cyprian rejected Stephen's meddling in the affairs of the North African church. Now, how can this be if Cyprian saw Peter as the rock? The answer is devastating to the Roman Catholic position. Cyprian believed that every bishop, himself included, was fulfilling the role of Peter as the rock. In Epistle 26 of Cyprian, he makes this very claim, citing Matthew 16, 18 with reference to all bishops, nowhere mentioning the Bishop of Rome alone. Such passages led John Meyendorf to note, quote, In fact, however, Cyprian's view of Peter's chair, which Father Paco mentioned, was that it belonged not only to the Bishop of Rome, but to every bishop within each community. Thus, Cyprian used not the argument of Roman primacy, but that of his own authority as successor of Peter in Carthage. We can only wholeheartedly agree with the words of Dr. Cox, who, commenting on Cyprian's treatise on the unity of the church, said the following. Compare this treatise of Cyprian, then, with any authorized treatise on the subject proceeding from modern Rome, and it will be seen that the two systems are irreconcilable. Thus, in few words, says the confession of Pius IV, quote, I acknowledge the holy Catholic apostolic Roman church for the mother and mistress of all churches, and I promise true obedience to the Bishop of Rome, successor to St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles and Vicar of Jesus Christ, end quote. This is the voice of Italy in the ninth century, but Cyprian speaks for ecumenical Christendom in the third, and the two systems are as contrary as darkness and light, end quote. It is no wonder that Vermilion, Bishop of Caesarea, could write to Cyprian, joining in his condemnation of Pope Stephen, speaking of those who at Rome, quote, vainly pretending the authority of the apostles, end quote, and making schism from the peace and unity of the church, and could go on to say, quote, I am justly indignant at this so open and manifest folly of Stephen, that he who boasts of the place of his episcopate and contends that he holds succession from Peter, on whom the foundation of the church was laid, should introduce many other rocks and establish new buildings of many churches, end quote. My friends, we cannot in this short period of time even begin to scratch the surface, but you have a responsibility, and please do this for me, whatever you do. Whatever sources you read, whether it's mine or anybody else's, go to the early fathers themselves and read the whole context. You will find that those early fathers did not believe what Vatican I has said has been the constant faith of the universal church in every age. Thank you. The reason that many of you are here today, and the reason that I have, have organized these debates on an annual basis, you can't hear me? The reason that I have organized these debates, and the reason that they have come about, is due largely in part to a very good friend of mine who is a Roman Catholic, and if you ever heard the way he speaks to me, you might not know he's a very good friend of mine. <laughs> But he is indeed a very good friend of mine. He and his wife are both dear to me. And he uh, began having these parties at his home several years ago. In fact, I'm giving your address, his address to everyone in this room. Before you leave. <laughs> uh, he began parties in his home uh, about four years ago, I would say. Excuse me? Nine years ago, but not, I wasn't involved in those. I, I were? I was? Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, he had these parties developed at his home uh, primarily to get Protestants and Roman Catholics to sit around, eat food, drink, and debate one another. Uh, he, like I, was, was becoming nauseous with the mushy-gushy ecumenicalism where everybody sat around and blew kisses to one another and never really spoke about the hard issues that divide us. And I wanted to introduce to you uh, my good friend Robert Posh of Doubleday Books and his wife Mary Lou. And uh, they're here tonight. This is Bob's very first time at the debate here. His wife has been here in the past, but this is the very first time Bob has come, so I want an extra round of applause for the fact that he's come tonight. And it is proof that uh, people can love one another and be very, very strong in their uh, differences of opinion. And because we care about each other, we share those differences regularly. And at times, uh, 911 is dialed. But, <laughs> but we still remain friends. And I just wanted to tell you because that's because we think God's truth is more important than anything else. And as Bob often puts it, it's more important than the Super Bowl. It's more important than anything else. And in fact, quickly, uh, what uh, endeared Bob to my heart one, one day, one of his parties, a Protestant woman, had said to Bob, you know, Bob, I just think it's wonderful that you've found a relationship with God, with the Catholic faith, and I think we should just stop arguing and bickering about these doctrinal issues. Let's stop we're talking about doctrine and lift up Jesus. And Bob's reply to this Protestant woman was, you see that guy Chris Arnson standing over there? I disagree with almost everything he believes, but he believes in something. You don't believe in anything. <laughs> and that it has endeared me to his heart. But of course, although it's noble and admirable to believe in something passionately and strongly, I'm sure everyone in this room agrees that it's, it's equally important to believe in the right thing. And may God reveal that to us tonight. And I want to thank Bob and Mary Lou for coming tonight. Thank you. Okay, now both of our debaters are going to engage in 15 minutes of close uh, examination, consuming of questions, and I guess a lot of rhetorical questions. And uh, <laughs> I will get out of the way so I don't get the crossfire. And then after that, there will be a seven-minute closing statements, and then uh, questions, it says, from the audience, and unfortunately, it usually winds up being speeches from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll let them do their closing examination, and I'll follow the platform on the first. Get there first. Come on, Sarah. Thank you. Not necessarily more charitable, but I think a little younger. <laughs> I know a little younger. <laughs> right. I've got I've got a timer. All right. Um, first of all, you mentioned Mr. White the issue of Saint Augustine, mm -hmm. saying that there's freedom to in, in his Retractationes, uh, there's freedom to interpret the rock as Peter or Peter's faith. Actually, he says uh, interpreting it as uh, the rock as Christ is one of the uh, options. That he but also as Peter. Yes. Uh -huh. And is not the fact is not the fact that the issue at stake for him is that he is talking about interpreting it not any way you want, 
but rather given the context of the way he uses it, interpreting it as Christ when he's dealing with the, the um, Aryan heretics and dealing with it as Peter when he's dealing with the papacy. And that you can interpret as you wish, given the context, that you have to understand the context. Because he interprets it both ways, does he not? Uh, he interprets it both ways. However, he says, in olden days, I interpreted it one, day, one way. Now I've changed my mind on that. But I, I can't answer the question because I don't believe he dealt with the quote-unquote papacy. I believe he dealt with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, but I do not believe that he had a concept that the Bishop of Rome was the universal head of the church. So I, I'm not sure how to answer the question when you say he interpreted it in light of the papacy because I don't believe he did. So that in relationship to that last response in particular, in his dealings with um, you know, Pope Innocent I, of, as he says, uh, does he not mention that, uh, he, that the Pope had answered as was the right and the duty of the Bishop of the Apostolic See? In fact, he uses the term apostolic see not only of Rome, but of all the quote-unquote apostolic sees. There was only one apostolic see in the West, as you know. That was Rome. There were multiple apostolic sees in the East, and he addresses all of them in that way of recognizing their, uh, their very exalted status. No two ways about it. And the same when he uh, deals with the canon of Scripture at the Synod of Carthage. Mm -hmm. How does he conclude that? Well, his, his view of Scripture, he disagreed strongly with Jerome in regards to the Deuterocanonicals. They argued about that. They argued about that, and the answer that he came up with was? Oh, he accepted the Deuterocanonicals. Yes, because they're found so did St. Jerome. I'm sorry? So did St. Jerome, once there was a decision. No, St. Jerome translated them. He never, he never viewed them as canonical. Yes, he did. He viewed them as canonical once a decision was made, and when St. Augustine presided at the Synod of Carthage, which gave the list of the canon. He said, we will send this to the bishop across the sea, referring to uh, Amos, uh, referring to uh, Amos. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Da Damasus was dead already. Uh, Damasus had presided at the Synod of Rome in dealing with the uh, scripture in 382. And by 393, Damasus had already died. I don't want to. I don't want to lose yeah. everybody, but uh, there, but there are a number of scholars is, who don't feel that the, the, the council of, that what came out of the Council of Rome actually came from Galatius long afterwards. No, there was a problem there. Sure, but be that as it may, still Augustine recognized that this would be submitted to the bishop across the sea. Yes, uh -huh. so that you know, it was a provincial council, and that it's a provincial council which he submits to the see of Rome. Mm -hmm. The other, another point that I had over here, too, in regard to um, St. Athanasius, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria. And, you know, when you know, Pope Julius, um, you know, wrote to them, you know, he said, uh, are you not ignorant that this is customary for word to be written to us first, and then for a just sentence to be passed from this place? And they, they see maybe they were ignorant. But, you know, they, uh, he certainly seems uh, quite willing to correct them in terms of the issue of the treatment of Athanasius. There's, there's no doubt that the bishops of Rome made great claims to their see. So did Stephen. Uh -huh. uh, but Cyprian rejected that. And I just point out that when Liberius signs the Arianized Sermium Creed, that does not cause Athanasius to then do the same thing. No. And again, Liberius, everybody even those days knew why Liberius signed. Yeah, and, and, why, and, and why Athanasius, uh, though... 
kicked out of the sea five times didn't sign. Right. Liberius was caught and he was imprisoned mm -hmm. and that he was put under such torment that he had a breakdown. Mm -hmm. With Athanasius, God be praised, if I loved in Athanasius, uh, fled off to, be, to live with the monks who protected him and he then, when fleeing, brought monasticism to the West for which were, you know, my order is certainly partly of the descendants of that monasticism he brought, and that, um, you know, a, a delight in the great Athanasius. But the um, issue that about Pope Liberius that every, all his contemporaries recognize uh, is that, as did Athanasius, as did Athanasius, that the man had a breakdown, and you couldn't count what he had after what had gone uh, happened to him with torture, that that was any kind of a free decision. So it's not that Liberius agreed with it, he was a broken man. So that's, it's hard to use him, you know, as in any other way. And that, uh, another thing, too, that I wanted to mention... There's very question there. <laughs> oh, well, I was just, uh, yeah, I just... I guess not. Sorry. <laughs> Let me bring up a question. That wasn't... I was trying to formulate a question. On there was one of those rhetorical here. questions. Yes, it was. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> one of the things... Uh, you mentioned in uh, the, the list of people, uh, some of the um, uh, 44 different fathers who see that Peter's faith is a confession of Jesus Christ, according to uh, uh, Lenore. Well, that the rock of which Jesus speaks, this rock, mm -hmm. uh, epitalte petra in the Greek, mm -hmm. that that is in reference to the confession. That, that Jesus that is the Christ, the Son of the God. God. The, the content of the confession, yes. And you mentioned a number of people. Um, in, uh, in that list, right? In fact, I'm finding it for you right now. Yes, I did. But do you know the the other people on the list? Uh, actually, oh, one of the 44. Uh, actually, I have a fairly extensive list in Denny, but I only listed a certain number. Yeah. Okay, because it includes Pope Leo. Oh yeah. You know that that he also recognized that the thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Pope Leo the Great. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are four texts from Pope Leo. Correct. Pope Felix in 43. Pope Ormistus, 519, Pope Gregory the Great, I did Pope list. Adrian the First. I did list, Gregory. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, Pope John the Seventh. He even has John Eck, who's hardly a father of the church. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John Eck would be going a little beyond what I would yeah, 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 that. Yeah. But that's, that's one of the 44. So my, my question is, do you think that these people like Pope Felix, Pope Gregory, Pope Leo the Great, Pope Ormistus, Pope Adrian the First, uh, Pope Stephen the Fifth, Pope John the Eighth. Do you think that in stating that they recognize that this is a confession that Jesus is the Christ, that they are in any way denying the primacy of the papacy and so saying? If you ask if they're denying the primacy of the papacy, the issue that I raised was how they understood the passage because Rome claims that it has always been understood in that way and it's a perverse opinion to see it otherwise. Mm -hmm. Their foundation stones for the papacy, their belief in their own supremacy, came from a number of different issues, even as early as Stephen citing this passage of himself. But, and I, 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 I'm trying to keep my responses short and sure. concise, no, no, but my focus is, is upon this. Vatican I dogmatically states that the interpretation of Matthew 16 includes 
that Peter is the rock, that this sets him apart from the other apostles. He's given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. His successors are solely the bishop of Rome, not yes. the bishop of Antioch or the bishop of Constantinople, etc., 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 and that therefore this primacy is given to the successors of the bishop of Rome only. And I'm trying to point out that if you're saying that that is the universal faith of the, faith of the church, believed in every age, that that is not what any of these people believe, and even the popes themselves who saw a tremendous position of authority in the West of their see, it was still a matter of evolution before that became an established belief on their own. Well, here's, here's the problem, is that um, these, a number of these same people also wrote that Peter is the rock. Mm -hmm. So that it's not that, you know, you seem to indicate that because they believe that the rock is the profession that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, therefore they did not believe that Jesus is the rock. Well, if you I say, assume if, that Peter is, that the, Peter rock. is the rock. Yeah, and so, in his and, sole person. Yeah, and so, and that's one of the things that, see, about Catholicism. You know, we can see that it's both. We have no problem with that. Mm -hmm. And that fathers like Augustine and like these popes can see both. And we don't, that's, that doesn't contradict what Vatican I said, because these people, you know, many of these same people teach exactly that Peter is the rock and that the rock is a confession, as I myself said, and as a matter of fact, as the present Pope said. He has said that in his book. The problem is that Vatican I then used this little thing called the anathema upon anyone who would uh, present... As a, as, wait a minute, as, a, as a perverse opinion, any viewpoint that would not include as a necessary element of its interpretation this idea that Peter is hereby being set apart and that he has to be the rock. Now you're saying, well, someone could say he is the rock and the confession is rock and so on and so forth. That's nice, but this is, this is why I struggle well, no, with this. Yeah, exactly. Let me just ask this. How do you understand the anathema? How do I understand the anathema? What the anathema mean? Well, <laughs> well, <clears throat> the anathema, at least originally, well, biblically, the anathema is, is, a, is, a, is a rather important thing. Yes. Uh, Paul right. uses it in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, and it is the curse of God. Right. But how does the Catholic Church understand that? Well, if there's a difference, that might result in a whole new debate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, I mean... I mean, if, if, there, if there's a different usage, that's probably not a good thing to bring up. But um, I reckon, let, let me put it this way. Uh, I believe that if you look at how anathema was used in the Middle Ages and up to the time of Reformation, that it had the same biblical use it has today. I recognize the biblical use that, that, that we just discussed. I have had many Roman Catholic apologists tell me, Father Paco, that anathema does not mean that I'm a curse. It doesn't mean that I'm separated from the body of Christ. Da, 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 da. However, I've had other Roman Catholics call me up after radio programs to make sure that I knew that I am anathema and I will go to hell if I die in that state. So uh, let, let, me, let me just make a, a clarification uh, and, and then a psych, another question to follow upon it. Uh, you know, the anathema does not mean that you go to hell. That's one of the things in Galatians. It, it meant that you were cursed. But one of the things that, you know, we have to be careful, remembering our Lord's words, that we may not judge others, in particular, not, not that we can't judge behaviors wrong and right. That's what, neither of us would agree with that. But we may not judge that somebody is in hell or in heaven. That, you know, unless that's what Paul heaven. was judging their gospel. Right. And right. they said that they preached the gospel, they are is a curse. Exactly. Now, but to say that that person who is accursed ends up in hell 
That's something that Paul never says. Well, being an asthma, though, isn't a good thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> but we don't. But we don't. But, but it's important for you to understand that the Catholic Church in its anathemas don't mean that you go to hell. We don't know that. But we do know that there has to be a ban on such a person that, and excluding from communion. It certainly is excommunication because you can't share the sacraments. And this is where my follow-up question is. Do you believe that we Catholics are Christians? What is that? Well, I, would like <laughs> well I, I have exactly two minutes to answer that right. question, but I have said many, many times, I've said in the Roman Catholic controversy, we've discussed this in the previous debates, which of course you may not, I'm not sure if you listened to the previous debates, you wouldn't know what, what has been discussed. But very, very briefly, I do not believe that Catholicism preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And that is what I focus upon. Individual, and I have, I've said in my books, that I believe that there are individuals within the Roman Catholic communion that are heirs of eternal life, but I immediately say, insofar as they are inconsistent in believing in the system of salvation that's presented, the sacraments, the mass, and I said this very clearly in our debate in regards to, to the mass a, a number of years ago, uh, and hence it requires basically they be inconsistent Roman Catholics. At that so that, but the person who is consistently Catholic, I would consider myself, you know, I believe know what the Catholic Church teaches about the sacraments, of a strong devotion. I do not believe there is salvation in that gospel. No. Right. So that, that is, you know, you keep, because this is one of the things you do in other debates, that it's this anathema put on us, but you've anathematized us as well. I, I would never, never uh, do well, that. Well, effectively. That if by saying that we are not Christian, and, and be, if we believe this, do, this gospel, we cannot be saved. That's actually stronger than our canonical understanding of the anathema. And, and this is the something question, that, The question is, which is biblical? Well, no, no, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just trying to make a point that while you worry about our anathema, believe me, as a Catholic, your disregard of my Christianity has little effect on me. And why you worry about our anathemas boggles my mind. Well, I can, I answer, can, I, can I answer why? Sure, sure. Because in this context, the whole reason is that if the dogmatic documents of the church are going to say that, therefore, if anyone shall say a blessed few of the apostles not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or at the same directly and immediately reserved, or received in the same our Lord Jesus Christ or primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema, that tells me that the church is serious about that doctrine Absolutely. and that teaching. And that's all, that's all it's revealing to me. But we don't say that, we don't deny your Christianity. But I didn't bring that up. Or I'm bringing up I know the importance it. of what this is. I know, I just find that there's this, this an imbalance okay. in the seriousness of the accusations. I have concerns. <laughs> okay, my turn. <laughs> uh, and I, I too will make the same confession of trying to avoid the rhetorical questions as I go on and give you some rhetorical questions. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> now, Father Pacwa, if your interpretation of Matthew 16 is correct, um, why do disciples continue to argue over who would be the greatest? Does not their arguing show that they did not understand this piece, this passage, as setting Peter apart the way you do? As a matter of fact, I would see it as uh, no different uh, a situation from your own family, Christian family, mm -hmm. where you are the head of the house, designated by God as such, and yet I bet from age two, probably till death, your children might disagree with you, and that this is normal in disagree most households. Disagree or disobey? Well, I, I'll, I'll confess, from my side, I did both. 
and you know, with my father. Okay. And this is something that is part of the you know humanity. Sure, people disobey and disagree. I, as a matter of fact, if I've, as I've heard you before, I've often sensed that it's because of your own very strong sense of conscience that had that had you been one of the disciples and you believe this, you would not do that. However, you know, not all of us are quite that consistent and upstanding. But Father Paco, and there's plenty of us who would be disobedient. But Father Paco, if they are being disobedient, why doesn't Jesus then correct them and say, stop arguing, I've already decided the issue, Peter's going to be your head. Instead, his, his illustration is, serve one another. Yes. Well, as, a matter of fact, as, as a matter of fact, he brilliantly, you know, defines, you know, that service as, or excuse me, as that leadership of the apostles as one of service. And that's one of the reasons why the popes have taken as their first title the servants of the servants of God. And that that's, and, you know, hopefully they'll live up to that. Why? And they take that very much to heart. Why do we not find any mention of the papacy nor the power of the keys as understood by Roman Catholicism in books like the pastoral epistles or, in fact, any part of the New Testament that is written directly to the churches of Christ? You know, one of the, it, it's impossible to answer, you know, a, an argument about silence. You don't know, you know, that the issue uh, doesn't come up. And so I mean, you, you don't know what it is that evokes certain issues. Why was Paul writing to Timothy and Titus and talking to them about elders and deacons and the qualifications and how the church is to function, how to deal with widows, and yet the key element of how you're to have the unity of the faith doesn't show up? Well, see, first of all, you know, having the diaconate, the presbyters, the priests, and the bishops, the overseers, is a key element of the church. As a matter of fact, in your point about, you know, Peter, excuse me, about Clement, and, you know, being as part of a group of elders, of course he was part of a group of elders. Having the, the presbyters, the priests, there was part of being with the bishop. We see that with Ignatius of Antioch. And so what Paul is doing is having the, the uh, St. Timothy make sure that he sets up the correct order of the physical order, including, and, and the priestly order, and have this in different places, you know, uh, that wherever he goes, the establishment, make sure, sure he does it according to good principles. But, you know, it's not that you, you can't have, you know, both, you know, having the presbyters and the deacons and the bishops is essential in every place. That's what Ignatius of Antioch says. Without them, you don't have the church. Let me give you an example. In Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be going into bondage. He warns them that many false men are going to rise amongst them, teaching perverse things. And as he's leaving, why in that situation, when he's talking about apostasy coming in the church, do we not find him saying, now you stick close to Peter and the bishops of Rome as the, as the source of, of, of unity, Instead, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. As a matter, again, as a Catholic, I find nothing inconsistent with that. Of course you would commend him to God. Of course you would commend him to the gospel he gave. And then also keep in mind that Paul had not yet gone to Rome as far as we know. That Paul doesn't get to Rome for another two years plus. And that, you know, does he even know where Peter is? I'm, so why, I mean, this so is, again, why, again, so why doesn't he direct people to Peter then? If, if this was the ancient faith of the church, and did, do you believe that Paul understood that Peter was the vicar of Christ, that he had an authority that Paul did not have? That, oh, I would believe he had an authority that Paul did not have, but I also believe that Paul had authority. 
as do all the that's apostles. Not, that's not what I asked, though. Did Paul believe that Peter had an authority that Paul didn't have? And if so, can you find me one place in the New Testament where he indicates that? I would have to say I don't know because Paul doesn't say that or answer that question. Okay. And one of the things, again, it's, it's arguing from silence. I can't guess what Paul doesn't speak about. And so, that why, I, so I can't make a principle on the silence. Why do you call it an argument of silence when the dogmatic teachings of the Roman Catholic Church say that this is what Jesus meant, this is what he was doing, he set Peter apart at that time, and that he gave these authorities to him? Why is that an argument of silence when it's Rome making the positive claim that these things did exist? Again, they exist when we see them come up. For instance, the, the issue with uh, Clement, along with the elders of Rome, not apart from them, I, mean, I would hate to see you know, the bishop of Rome acting apart from his elders, just as that today the cardinals who take the place of those elders and are considered his you know, uh, elders. Uh, when he acts, he act, we would love to see that he acts in union with the cardinals. And the other bishops. In Clement's so letter, is, does he ever call himself bishop? Does he ever actually identify himself? No. There's there's only, either. There is, there is, again, it's, I mean, you just can't, you know, this is something that, you know, uh, a lot of times you'll see that you know, people don't say all that they are, what they do. The pronouns, the pronouns all the way through Clement's letter, are they not all plurals? We, we, we. Mm -hmm. And Clement has never actually identified the letter, is he? No. So if you only read the letter, this is simply the elders at Rome writing to Corinth, isn't it? Yeah, perhaps. But it's also perhaps possible that as the successors of Peter have done, up until the present Pope, use the we because they know that they don't speak for themselves personally, but they, sign they know the that they, they sign their name, but they use the uh, uh, first-person plural for themselves and for the things they say and do. We right. have decided, we have done this. So that's... But if we just looked at the letter of Clement alone without having a papacy and reading that in, we'd, all we'd be able to say is, all through it, it is we, 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 never mm -hmm. I. Yeah. That's and never, no citations of Matthew 16, 18, no claims of the papacy. No. Okay. Did assume that he didn't need to. Was, was, Cyprian, was Cyprian, when he taught that all bishops seat upon, sit upon the seat of Peter, was he rebelling against truth? Yes. As a matter of fact, not only on that, but on the point, the issue at stake. Uh -huh. um, you know, you know, that uh, rebaptism of heretics was wrong. So when the Seventh Council, Council of Car Carthage met and rebuked uh, and said that there is no bishop of bishops and rebuked Stephen's interaction in the North African churches, there is an entire council that was in error. Well, first of all, the church, especially under Pope Gregory the Great, accepted that. Accepted Paul, that, that there is no bishop of bishops. Right. He rejected that title the, uh, was rejected. The that's, that's, not, that's not, and also they made sure that the Patriarch of Constantinople rejected that title, who kept on trying to usurp it. So that was rejected. Um, and so it agreed with that, but it, as a matter of fact, this is part of papal primacy. That yes, they can be uh, over any synod. So and, and all the early fathers who interpreted uh, the seat of Peter as referring to all bishops, they were all rebellious bishops. Is that, is that what you're actually saying? They would be certainly in you know, rebellion. So one of the things about rebellion is that you have to make sure, you have to make sure that it's clearly stated in a way that a person is rebelling against something. Mm -hmm. 
that you can't just say that you're rebel rebelling against a vague. Uh, you know, sometimes okay. you know, folks will do things and it's not clearly defined. Okay, then All where right? in the early church had it ever been clearly defined to these bishops that the Bishop of Rome was the sole successor of Peter? This is something that you see, uh, uh, again, in the list that I mentioned earlier, that, um, find it again, that the, you have list, a long list of authors. For instance, Tertullian. You know, okay. One of the points Tertullian. that you had made with Tertullian, that he mocked the Pope. He did. And After he, he became a heretic. No, yes, well. Well, he became a Montanist heretic. Using and then, of course, we expect the heretics to do that kind of ridicule. <laughs> but while he was still a Catholic, he speaks well of the Pope, as, as, as of Peter, as having that authority in uh, ordaining Clement. Does Tertullian say that the Bishop of Rome is the sole successor of Peter? No, I don't think that he, Tertullian says that. Cyprian does say that. Uh, Cyprian, I, now see, this is where I'm not as familiar with Cyprian stuff. Let me, I can say that um, you certainly have, um, uh, see, well, I mentioned Gaius, uh, certainly counts uh, Victor as the successor of Peter. And that, and your question was, okay, I, about, I, I understand, I understand what you're saying. Right. Cyprian would have yes, no problem accepting. Cyprian, yes, Cyprian does say that it's the place of Peter and the chair of Peter. That he does say. Exactly. But where Cyprian also says that every bishop sits in the chair of Peter. Mm -hmm. Most of the North Africans did all the way into the days of Augustine. Read my endorsed discussion of this in regards to, to uh, Orthodox theology. The point is that you can't have someone simply saying that the Bishop of Rome sits in the chair of Peter because Cyprian would have said that. Uh -huh. He also said, so do I. Yeah. And that was his rebellious part, right? Right. Because the, point is, is, what, what the, the clarification is he does sit. On the chair of the apostle, one of the of the apostles, he said Peter. Successor, right? His successor of the apostles. That we would say. Okay. But he was he was incorrect in his formulation. What? As, if he, if he that's one of the reasons he wasn't pope. If he was guilty of rebellion, actually he was called Pope Cyprian by the deacons of Rome. But yeah. if uh, if he was guilty of rebellion, and you have to have a clear statement against which to rebel, what council, what father, Ignatius, Polycarp, who was it that taught? that the chair of Peter resides only in Rome and that only the bishops of Rome are the successors of Peter. Who said that in the early church? I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know anybody who did. Mm -hmm. In terms of putting it exactly that way, that they did, first of all, that they do recognize that the bishop of Rome succeeds St. Peter. There's no doubt. Now that you see that again and again. As did, as did all of the bishops, yes. But uh, not all, again, not all the bishops. So, no, um, that, well, that's the whole point. Again, that's, that's what Cyprian says, but not all the bishops said that they all sit on the throne of Peter. That was Cyprian's formulation, and it's not used anywhere else. Can you name me? Oh, yes, it is. Vermillion and many others have the exact same viewpoint. Can you name me just one early father who believed that the only successor to Peter was the bishop of Rome on the basis of Matthew 16? Certainly Irenaeus. Irenaeus looks to, as a matter of fact, says that the pure doctrine in his Contra Heresis and the, the pure doctrine of the faith is found at Rome. At Ro in the church at Rome, church not at Rome. the bishop of Rome. Where does he say that the bishop alone, see Bishop Lightfoot pointed this out, that in the early fathers, the prerogatives of Rome were the church, and only over ages did it become the bishop. At first, the, the, royal, the royalty, quote-unquote, of the bishop was due to the, to the royalty of the church. Then it became reversed to where Rome's position was because of the bishop. So it, uh, Irenaeus never says... 
And in fact, if you, how do you respond? I should put this in a question format. How do you respond to Irenaeus's rebuke of Victor in regards to the Quartodeciman controversy and his threat to, uh, to uh, uh, excommunicate the Eastern churches? The same way that I re- respond to St. Catherine of Siena's uh, rebuke of the popes of her day during the Avignon uh, papacy, that uh, she told them off for, what? It, for not being in Rome. That's fine. Was that doctrinal in the way that this was with uh, Victor and Irenaeus? It's, uh, I'm not sure that I... See, neither one is doctrinal. Both of them are issues of um, behavior. No, Whether you excommunicate the entire Eastern churches is it doctrinal? Yes, it is. That exactly. It was the issue not of a doctrine, but it was the issue of when you celebrate Easter. Yes. And so that uh, the, the, it had nothing to do with doctrine. They didn't deny Are you Easter. willing to split the unity of the church over when you celebrate Easter? It's, unfortunately, it still does. I mean, we wish to well, celebrate One last question. Yes, I'm almost out of time. I've got sure. about a minute and a half. The Council of Chalcedon passed what's known as the 28th Canon, in which they said that the reason that old Rome had had such a, a, a prerogative in the church was because it was the seat of the empire. And now that the emperor was in Constantinople, then the new Rome, Constantinople, would rank second after Rome. Pope Leo rejected that canon but it was still passed by the council, mm-hmm. was reiterated by later councils, and in fact, the Eastern Orthodox would still hold on to How could they pass a canon like that in an ecumenical council that, that we believe was very important in regards to defining the doctrine of Christ if it was the universal and constant faith of the church to believe in Petrine primacy as Rome defined it? Much the same way that the apostles could still argue amongst themselves about who was first that this is the kind of argument that you see in the apostolic uh, days, and the same kind of argument that continues, unfortunately, to this day as well. Why is their doctrine of Christ infallible to their doctrine of the 28th canon not? This is one of the things about any human being, that, you know, you see the apostles, uh, you know, were themselves right about Christ, you know, in so many ways, but they were often arguing amongst themselves over, you know, the other themselves. And so that this is the way that, you know, people are. Okay. Thank you. One of the delights, as I mentioned earlier, is that in doing this debate, it motivated me to uh, study more the history of the papacy. Now, what I do for a living is teach scripture, and I love teaching scripture, but it's good to get into some areas that sometimes you miss when you're just working on exegesis and teaching the texts. And this has been one of those cases. I know that uh, I need to learn much, much more. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, the modern world begins in the year 200 AD. I consider people like Aristotle and Plato modernists. I like old books like Genesis or the Epic of Gilgamesh, or Exodus, and so on. But this is good to get into modern history by studying the the, the fathers. And a few few things I would still want to hold to. As it became more clear to me, I appreciated the uh, discussion that we had with our questions, because, you know, in a lot of ways it helped me, you know, clarify that some of the things that Mr. Uh, White is talking about really are concerns about the silences. And 
I guess they just don't bother me, the silences. They, one of those things that I say, well, as I see that the papacy does start to speak up, and as we see the issues develop, that there is greater clarity. As a matter of fact, I feel the same way about other silences in the history of early Christianity. For instance, silences about the history of the canon. You know, the canon of Scripture becomes something that is clarified in the 4th century, the late 4th century at that, the 380s and the 390s. And not only this, the canon of Scripture, but also we see that the first council doesn't take place in, until the 4th century, 325 with Nicaea, and then they go on all the way to the present. Now, does that mean that, you know, because the only prior council was the you know, council at Jerusalem, and then we don't see uh, St. Clement say, let's have a council, or the church at Corinth, let's have a council, or somebody else, let's say, let's have councils. They, you know, does that mean it doesn't exist? No, like, you know, there are synods, uh, but ecumenical councils come in the 4th century. And it, it is also late that we see some of the issues of the papacy coming to the maturity in the 4th century and later. But it's also important to point out that this is the age of Constantine's legalization of Christianity. Not the beginning of Catholicism. As a matter of fact, a certain Protestant practice started during that reign. Uh, prior to the year 327, there's not a single case of baptism of infants being postponed. You know, the first time we see Christian parents postpone baptism of their children is somebody born in 327. We don't have evidence earlier. Uh, but the point is that it's during the age of Constantine and later, when the persecutions stop, that the issues of authority in the church do become more clear and more clarified regarding the canon of scripture, the role of ecumenical councils, and the papacy. Again, that doesn't deny that they exist earlier. They do. And the issues and points about papal authority and primacy exist earlier in small ways, to be sure, but these were difficult times for other reasons. And I still maintain and believe very, very uh, strongly that church, the church was established on the rock of St. Peter, and Christ did so quite firmly. In no way do I see that that contradicts the foundation of the church on the truth that Jesus is God, the, the Son of God, and that he's himself the Messiah, no way. Nor does my church, that's why we allow both. One of the joys of being Catholic, that sometimes drives you know, Protestants crazy, is that we don't go for either or. It's not faith or works. It's not the Bible or tradition. And it's not the primacy of Peter as the rock or belief in Jesus as the rock. It's both of those and. It's a richness that is inclusive, not denying. And that we don't deny these other points of the primacy of Scripture. They complete inerrancy. We teach that. We encourage the reading of Scripture. Absolutely. We want all of our people to read Scripture. 
to be sure. That's in papal statements, and it's printed in every Catholic Bible. And we also want people to submit to the primacy of St. Peter. Not because we make more money off it or anything like that. Not because we like bingo and silly things. But because it's established by Christ. Because obedience to him and obedience in this issue is part of his plan for the church. And that, in fact, as our church continues to grow and grow, not only is it the largest church, but it's also the largest Pentecostal church, with more charismatics than all the different Pentecostal denominations combined. And we're a church that's evangelical, a church that's missionary, a church that's on the move. We've got our problems, to be sure. But I looked at Peter and his successors in their primacy as a focus of unity and a source of unity that has given us an impetus to be a church not of one or other nation, but of all nations. And it's because of that glory and because of that gift, despite the problems that go along with that and every other gift, that I myself am strongly committed to it. And I so believe that it's from Christ that by the grace that Christ gives me, I hope that if it should happen, I'd rather be dead than denied that day. I would like to begin by thanking all of you who have worked so hard to make this available to, uh, to everyone here tonight. Thank you for being here. A special thanks to, uh, to Chris Arnzen and Mike Tolo for the, all the work that they do. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to address these issues, and I hope that uh, you have been blessed by hearing, being here this evening. I also wish to thank Mitch Pacwa for traveling all the way out here and for engaging in this debate. Uh, I, uh, I have a tremendous respect for him in, in that point, and we obviously disagree very, very deeply, but I'm thankful that uh, I think we succeeded in what I said we wanted to do, and that was we've debated the issues tonight, not uh, who Mitch Pacwa is or who I am, and I think that's very important. Gregory Nazianzen, non, Gregory wrote this. <laughs> Having gone through the whole set of sacred offices to pass over intervening events, he is entrusted with the presidency over the people, which is the same as saying the rule of the whole world. And I cannot say whether he received the priesthood as the reward of his virtue or to be the source and life of the church. For she fainting through thirst of the truth was like Ishmael to be refreshed or like Elijah to be revived when the earth and the drought was cooled in the stream and from her exhaustion to be brought back to life. Those are high words of praise. And I believe if they had been spoken of a bishop of Rome, a Roman Catholic apologist would cite them as evidence of the papacy because he talks about having the presidency and the rule over the whole world. But Gregory Nazianzen didn't say that about the Pope. He said that about Athanasius, bishop of Alexandria. Why is it then that a Roman Catholic, when hearing this type of language used of the bishop of Rome, automatically assumes that it means that that person believed that the Bishop of Rome has the sole and prime jurisdiction over the whole church? Why, when we see all these issues in the New Testament, 
is it that individuals can say, well, but that's just an argument through silence. And yes, when the pastoral epistles are written, yes, they talk all about how the church is to be formed and offices in the church, but the issue of the papacy just didn't come up. It was assumed. Why is that? It's because of what I said last year. There are two positions in this debate. I believe in sola scriptura, that the scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith in the church. The only other position when debating this issue with Roman Catholicism is sola ecclesia. The church as the final and absolute authority in matters of faith. And I believe the reason that individuals can look back at the history of the church and not see it for what it was, not see it the papacy as a gradual development, that it is contradicted by numerous things all the way through the history of the church is because they've been told what to see by their ultimate authority. And who is the ultimate authority? It's the Pope himself. I do not believe that if you take seriously the authority of the Roman see that you can then, in a dispassionate manner, examine the evidence because Rome has already told you this is what we've always believed and this is what you are to believe. But my friends, we cannot allow that kind of circular argument to be the foundation of our religious faith. Every six months I go to Salt Lake City and I witness to a whole mess of folks who have a very strong belief that the man who gathers with them up there in Salt Lake City, who they call a prophet, is a prophet from God. And there's nobody in this room, unless you happen to be LDS, who would accept the argument that the prophet is the prophet because the prophet says he's the prophet. That's not going to carry the day. In the same way, just because Rome says, well, this has been the universal faith of the church, you cannot then look at all of the fathers, like John Chrysostom, who says, Jesus did not establish his church upon Peter the man, but in opposition to that. See, he wasn't one of those that you could say, well, he sort of fits into both categories. He didn't. He specifically denied it was upon Peter, it was upon his confession of faith, and yet... What happens when we ask questions about that? What, ask, what happens when we've asked the question, can you show me anybody in the early church that understood Matthew 16 in exactly the way Vatican I says has always been believed, and so far I haven't heard anyone. I've heard someone say, well, he said something nice about Peter. That's fine. That doesn't make it relevant to the Bishop of Rome. He said something nice about the Bishop of Rome. Okay, that's fine. It doesn't mean that only the Bishop of Rome is the successor of Peter. My friends, we're talking about final and absolute authorities here, and this is irrelevant to every single person sitting in this room. Because the claim of Rome is, here you have the very vicar of Christ on earth, infallible in his pronouncements, and he may well, I don't know whether he's going to or not to, but he may well define as a dogma of the Christian faith to be accepted de fide, by faith, that Mary is co-redemptrix, mediatrix, and advocate for the people of God and bind that upon your conscience. That's vital. That's important, because when someone comes to me and asks me, what is the Christian faith? I have a finished book I can point them to. I don't have to say, well, right now it's this, but next week you, there may be another element, de fide, a belief that no one in the early church believed. Go back and look at the debate on Mary that we did. But if we invest in a particular human person, in a church that did not even have a singular bishop until the middle of the second century, absolute authority and jurisdiction over the Christian people, then the walls have come down. There is no way to guard against 
any type of teaching whatsoever. And I would submit to you that doctrines like the Immaculate Conception, the Bodily Assumption of Mary, which have been defined on the basis of this alleged authority, illustrate for us what happens when you both deny Sola Scriptura and embrace Sola Ecclesia. The issues are vital. And they have been laid before you tonight, I think, very clearly. Someone asked, does anyone know who wins the debate? You are the judges. That's your responsibility. I know we live in a society today that says, oh, no, don't tell anybody they've got responsibilities. I'm telling you right now, you have a responsibility to work through this issue. So, but I'm a busy person. Well, eternity is a long time. So work through the issues. Thank you for being here this evening. God bless. why this isn't working. Can you? Can't hear me at all, I guess. Well, I'll speak up real loudly then. There we go. Someone's turning it up. That's all right. This one's working now. 
Uh, obviously, I do not believe that uh, the issue was settled last week uh, or last year. There it goes again. Uh, there we go. Okay, we're still on. I do not believe that the issue was quote unquote settled because I, be I presented a tremendous amount of information that demonstrates why we believe in Sola Scriptura because it is that which is theodosos, is that which is God-breathed. And I asked Mr. Matatix to show us where you could find anything that was theodosos outside the Bible, and he was not able to give us that. So the issue, the reason I have said that this is a continuation of last year is that this last year I defended my ultimate authority. Now we see the other ultimate authority. Both sides are being presented to us so that we can weigh them and understand what, what the results of accepting both sides would be. So we're here because now we're getting an opportunity to apply the same standards to the arguments that Roman Catholicism uses for the papacy uh, that were used against Sola Scriptura last time. I actually thank you for mentioning the God breathed part because it just occurred to me, and I wanted to ask you this is my second and final question. Do you want to say, I'm sorry, God? I was just going to say that if you only have one question per person, because uh, otherwise we won't get oh, it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I enjoyed the answer the second part of the question. I think it was really a one part question, but he answered the first part first. Because God breathed, and I really, this is very, very quick. I, I do say, are you not saying, with saying the scripture is God breathed, and therefore that is your soul authority, are you not doing what you say the Catholic Church does and what the Latter day Saints do by claiming that some person says something? Well, you say a book, this is God's read, and to me that's the same argument. And yes. how would you respond to that? Be glad to. In the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. have you not read what God spoke to you, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? My view of the scriptures, by God's grace, the same view that Jesus Christ enunciated there, that when you read the words of scripture, you are hearing God speaking to you. And when you say, when you say, wait, wait, wait. And when you say, am I not doing the same thing, I point out something to you. When God says, I am God, what higher authority does he refer to to prove that point? There has to be an ultimate authority. It must be in what God himself says, and that's why it's in the scriptures. Yeah. Okay, 30, 30 seconds. Wait a minute. He, he, he can come in like 30 seconds. Okay, he can respond. Right. And first of all, I want to make sure that every Protestant here, and certainly every Catholic knows, we Catholics also believe that the scriptures are God's read and that God speaks to us in those same words. And then we call it a When we deal with this, we do want to always seek the scriptures. That's what we want to go back. That's what we look for. And um, you know, I don't and that we don't know that the scriptures, we don't know that these books are the ones who are put by the apostles except because of the traditions given to us by the apostles and the successors of bishops, including Bishop Rome. Okay, uh, my question is for Priest Mitch. Um, I hope that wasn't meant disrespectfully. <laughs>
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.